Daniel. Bennett. Good day. Good day. How's life? How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing good. Uh, I've had a, a pretty good day, pretty nice relaxing day so far, so uh, it's been good. Good it's stuff. It's a, week, a weekend podcast, so a little unusual for us. It is. It is. I don't care what we're saying right now, so I'm going to change the subject. All right. So All right. I uh, came across this guy. His name's John Koenig, uh, K-O-E-N-I-G, and he is known for this uh, project he has called the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. And the mission of... Yeah, it's a cool title, right? Yeah, the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. Sounds like a cool poem or a cool project. The mission is to find the holes in the language of emotion. So we've talked about before how Hmm. there are limits to language. And so his... He wants to identify those language gaps to particular emotions, really specific ones that seem to resonate with more than just, you know, one or two people. Give it a word that then can be introduced into the language. Oh, okay. So he's most famous for a particular term called Sonder. And it's the idea that we think of ourselves as the main character of our own narratives and everyone else is just an extra. So Sonder is kind of the realization that even like an a random passerby is living a life as vivid and complex as ours. And so that sort of realization is we're all the main characters of our own narratives. And wow, that's sort of an overwhelming experience. Yeah, yeah. I've had that same thought before. I don't remember when the first time I had it, but you know, I was a teenager thinking that like, holy crap, you can go up to any any one person and interrogate them and they will have you know experiences just as deep and meaningful as, as mine. And I've actually thought about this too when I would, uh, at school and college, when I would be on the buses transporting us all over campus and and people from the city would also be on these buses because they're free and anyone can access them. And and sometimes there would be a a homeless person or or maybe more politically correct, a transient transient person. So I would be on the bus and I would think about how different our lives are. But interestingly enough, in our like complex narratives and like, led to this particular moment in time in which we're on the same path. We're experiencing the same, you know, more or less the same seats. We're not in the same seat, but you know what I mean. We're occupying the same space, more or less. And uh, it was just cool that regardless of who you are, when you're in a space together, your your complex paths are interwoven and you're experiencing more or less the same thing, uh, regardless of, you know, rich, poor, white, black, whatever your background is. And that just that I think that kind of falls into this idea of Mm -hmm. of Sonder. Um, Did you find any satisfaction in knowing now that there's a word Sonder that kind of encapsulates that experience that seems to resonate with How, lots and lots of people. Can you use the word in a sentence? Is it a noun or a verb? It's a noun, so you would experience, experience sonder. sonder. Yes. It's kind of like wonder. Um, yeah, I don't know how he develops the terms. Uh, I know that I've, I, I looked over some terms. I can't recall them on the spot, but they have Greek and Latin origins right. or, or German or all these different... He, he seems sure. to identify... He gives thought to them, so I'm sure there's... There's, uh, you know, prefixes and suffixes and, and, and just uh, association wouldn't surprise mm-hmm. me. Um, um, I, I like, I, I think that this guy, John uh, Koenig, you said? Yeah, yeah, John Koenig. I like, I kind of like this project that he's taken on, like identifying and then filling gaps in language. That's pretty cool. Um, is, is it and, useful? I mean, you had that experience anyway. Did you need the word Sonder to, to help you with it? Obviously not. So no, what, I, didn't, how- I didn't need it to uh, to have or notice the experience within myself, but 
the ability to articulate that to someone else, you know, having a word for it makes it a little bit easier. You know, we can, the thing about, about language, um, and about having a varied vocabulary is that you don't have to rely on one word, a singular word to communicate what you want. You can combine multiple words. And this is something that, um, people doing computer science think about all the time is combinatorial explosion. If you have oh, only that's one... a cool term. Combi- it's a really cool Let me term, get that right. right? Combinatorial explosion. Yes, combinatorial explosion. <laughs> that and tickles me. What? Yeah, yeah. What? It, what it is essentially is that well, if you have one variable and that's the only thing that can change, then you know that that variable can grow at a particular rate. That um, you have one degree of freedom, let's say um, that variable can change. But if you have two variables that can change at the same time, well, now you have a greater combinatorial effect than just variable A or variable variable B changing independently, because now you can have the different combinations of A and Is B. Is that what exponential means when someone says like the 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 combinatorial explosion is exponential as yeah. you increase the uh, options? Yeah, I mean, technically no, but essentially yes, that's what they mean, is that the more variables you have, the the greater number of combinations there are, and the, the wider and more vast the space of exploration is. So, like, to tie this back to the English language, we don't just have a limited vocabulary of, you know, 200 words or something like that that we have to use for everything. Instead, we can combine words uh to to get across an idea so you you told me what the definition of sonder sonder was mm-hmm. without me needing to know i mean that's how we can learn new words is that you can use the words that i'm already comfortable and familiar with to explain the new word i mean this is basic stuff but i think it is important to 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 remember that um these gaps in our language aren't they're not fatal flaws. They don't destroy communication and destroy our language. I don't know that anyone really claims that. Right. But we can navigate around those holes and those voids by cleverly putting together words that we know and understand. That said, like I do really like this guy's project of filling those gaps because, I mean, obviously I'm a big proponent of efficiency. So if we can communicate more effectively with each other, that sounds like a great idea. I mean, totally. I was thinking, so yeah, you had that experience and maybe I did too, to some extent or another, then when, and, and lots of people presumably have, so you introduce the word sonder, it, it resonates with us on some level. We say, yes, yes. And then you're able to have a discussion. It's it's almost like the word itself um, is a magnet and it's attracting us to tease out the nuance with the combinatorial explosion right like that's the mm-hmm. idea of sitting yeah. around using the word sonder to then expand and get more nuance so it's a shortcut to a general idea or a mm-hmm. definition and right. then we can tease out uh the profundity or or whatever sorts of insights through examining that word yeah 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 that's right and then there's also and i'll just make it explicit kind of what you said um with the whole combinatorial explosion thing it relies on us having enough words and choosing the right combination to get an idea across. Uh, humans were we're we're clever and you know we can th- reason and we can come to good descriptions of terms, but maybe two people don't come to the same description of the the feeling that they're having and mm-hmm. that can cause problems and cause friction, disagreements, whatever. Especially so when you're talking cross-culturally. So being able to choose a word that sums up that idea and then have everyone 
witness that word in context, you know, over the course of their learning of the language, that just helps solidify these ideas um, so that people can communicate more effectively, I think, anyway. So, again, just another point in this guy's favor for trying to fill these gaps. Totally. And so what he did is he did this project, the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows, introduces Sonder as one of the terms, and it takes hold, and he explains that he had this unusual experience of seeing it start to appear um, non-ironically or or genuinely in chat rooms and things like that, and then uh, he actually experienced overhearing a conversation in person in which someone talked about Sonder, and so this experience for him was surreal to think, wow, I'm able to introduce, uh, I think the term's like neologism, you know, a new word for our Mm -hmm. culture. Um, So he's able to introduce it, have it spread, and then kind of come full circle back to him. But then that leads me to ask you the question. All of that was sort of uh, a pathway to ask this question. What makes words real? Um. I guess it would be like uh what what grade of lead you're writing them in like you know whether it's a point 0.5 point 0.8 what? whatever so once it's on the paper it's real yeah uh so ink is extra real if you use a, a sharpie say like yeah that's it, even more real a surreal it, it's short for super real yeah, short that's an abbreviation <laughs> Such a dumb response. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, oh man, what what makes a word real? Well, my question, I guess, then is I can I can. So is Saunder less legitimate because a guy? I don't know how long ago he did this, mm. but let's assume it was in the last ten years, uh, maybe even twenty in our lifetime. Yeah. Introduces a term and it becomes usable. Uh, yeah, what? Okay, uh, I, I think I see what you're asking. So, like. Maybe um, a word like frenemy. How real is a word like frenemy? Right. It's useful. We hear it. We get it. Even if if someone's never heard that before, you can hear it and go, oh, kind of like, you know, they're friends, but enemies. Yeah, but you wouldn't get that with Sonder. And so what you're asking is, at what point does a word, should it be respected? And essentially, should people hear the word and buy into it and say, okay, I accept that as a word? And how skeptical is the counter? Should we be to introducing new terms? Or how slow should the process? We can't get out of control here. So, yeah, how does a, not only how does a word become, quote unquote, real, but, but uh, yeah, what, the, the better question is not how does a word become real, but what, what is a real word? <laughs> okay, so um, I think we can start at a pretty, at a pretty high level and as as objective as we can make it. So I think maybe the first um, the the first gate that a word has to pass is that it has to fit within the bounds of the rules of grammar and uh, com- common or at least comprehensible spelling and and pronunciation. Now, if you can't pass those gates, then your chances of getting buy-in are extraordinarily low. Yeah, so it's a pretty low barrier. You're just the the linguistic mm-hmm. logistics. Yeah, yep. <laughs> I like right. that linguistic I mean, logistics. <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, I think that that is the most. Even though you say it's a, a low barrier, I think it's the most significant one. Um, I think that whether fortunately or unfortunately, everything else is determined by uh, usefulness. The, How about that? 
usefulness and and the culture. So, and usefulness and the culture can kind of go back and forth. Um, so depending on the culture, a word can be more or less useful. I'm sure there are words that we don't, you know, some old English words or something that, that we don't use anymore um, that were useful for a time and were created and had plenty of buy-in. Right. Um, Do they cease to be words? Or I mean, sort of, right? Like, they, if you're not using the words, if no well, one's using them, are they, they're not very useful. Uh, they're not they, very useful, but I think that because of the forward progression of history, they don't stop being words. I mean, as long as they exist in text and we can refer back to them, then there is some historian somewhere who has a job only studying that word, you know? Um, and so, but, but, you know, the can't, the same can't be said, obviously in reverse, the words that we haven't created yet that will become useful in the future. You know, they, they aren't words yet. They don't exist yet, but we will create them. The words that we have created, but that aren't useful anymore, they're still words. They're just not useful. Well, okay, so when we talk about usefulness of words, is it fair to say that what we're saying is essentially how many brains will this word give me access to? Like, it's it's, the, it's a key into people's minds, more or less, and that's how useful. So the more obscure a word, the less access I have to someone's brain, and therefore the less useful. Is that fair to say? Um, I think... That that's a very pragmatic way of putting it, and yeah, I think that's fair. I agree with it. Um, I, I think there's some additional components. You know, the, the difficulty of the word to say, logistical things. Yeah. The difficulty yeah. of the word to say, um, whether it's more efficient than other uh, homonyms or or you know similar similarly defined words. You wouldn't use a really big complex word uh, when you could use a more concise term. I mean, right. I guess you might if you were a poet or some other <laughs> nonsense job. Um, but uh, Some nonsense job. Uh, obfuscation through clarity or clarity through obfuscation. Clarity through obfuscation, yeah. That's poetry when, in a nutshell. Right. When Who – did we discover that or did one of us come up – one of us come up with that? You came up with that and I stole it and put it yeah, in some Yeah, that's part. right. Or at least, I, I, unless you, d- no. you know, came upon it somehow, it, my first exposure was you saying right. that. I'm, I think I came up with that. I'm pretty sure it was you did. Too. An old Facebook comment from maybe like years and years ago. So poetry is obfuscation. Clarity, like clarity through, through obfuscation. obfuscation. Very important to get it in that order. It's uh, a pretty good micro poem, huh? <laughs> it's a good micro poem. But for a moment, go with me. I, I get that there are some. Uh, I'll say it again, linguistical logistics to get the barrier, how useful, how difficult, not useful, but how difficult is it to say? Is it spelling? Does it grammatically, it, there's a flow issue. Mm. Does it, does it, does it attach itself? Are we able to internalize it within the wheelhouse of how we know language works? I get that. But if we go for a second with words being, uh, you know, how many, br- how many brains will this word give me access to? Here's the cool thing. The, so the more obscure, the less useful. And in that sense, you could actually start making the case that some words are uh, more real than others. It's a funny way to frame it, but meaning like, so, so the higher, uh, the higher usefulness, the more real. So like mm-hmm. the word, and, and my understanding is that the word okay uh, is one of the most universal words uh, in, 
the universe? The, yeah, I don't want to say the English language. I think it actually might cross some barriers. Uh, the irony being, like, ask people what OK stands for. I mean, they'll tell you it means... Oklahoma. <laughs> yeah, Oklahoma is is the most real thing. <laughs> is the most real word we own. But, like, you could look up most common words and, and make the argument that they are most real. And that's just a, that's kind of a fascinating thought. And that the more obscure the words, the less access to more to the brains and the, and the less mm. real they are. I don't know. It's right. a funny thought. That's a, that's, you know, I, you may, I, I can't, I'm kind of on board with that idea. Um, that you can't draw a direct 100% correlation because like the most common words are connector words like the and, and sure. a part, you know, particles and stuff like that. Um, and so yeah. participles, no, wait, no, they're not, <laughs> no, participles. they're, they're, they're uh, a, an, and the are, and particles, uh, right? Par- that doesn't sound right to me. I'm embarrassing myself here. Art- articles, articles. That's it. Yeah. Right. Not yeah. particles. <laughs> so particles. That sounds sciencey to particles, me. Particles. Is sciency, but there's there is an an English term particles, right? Maybe I know participles, but participles whatever. It's articles. not important. Art. It's definitely it, articles, though. It is articles. Um. Anyway. Um. So those are the most common words. But if you ask someone, "Well, what does the mean?" Then they're like, mm. "Like that's not a key to your brain. It's just a a conversational lubricant. It connects the other important words in a sentence together. It's not just um, conversational, right? It's also it's how grammar and structure. It does inform you that it's not just a word. It's the word. So the, sure, the definite. Right. Like, you are they, teaching use, how meaning. Yeah, they are useful. Like I mean, no doubt about it. Otherwise, they would just kind of go away. Um, but but can you say that the word the is more real than the word bicycle? You know, um, right. and a, feels like a strange e- question. Yeah, yeah, even using even using your definition of how many minds uh, can this be a key into? I don't I don't think that holds up to scrutiny. Um, I think more people would classify the word bicycle as real than the word the. Um, and it's, I mean, it's not just, just amount used. It's it's there's something else to it. Like maybe maybe how concrete of a representation the word gives, or maybe how easily we can link that word with some experience of our own. So we can all easily, you know, especially if we've ridden a bicycle and seen a bicycle, the word bicycle is very real to us. We understand the the word, how to say it, how to spell it, and what it means. We understand it viscerally. We've ridden a bicycle ourselves. Then there can be other words like nostalgia, which is... You know, it's it's not a tangible thing. You don't go to the store and, well, yeah, at least abstract. not directly buy nostalgia. Um, <laughs> though, so, though, I would argue it's almost a number one sell. Like it's a huge seller. Oh, but sure, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah. But but once we un- once someone tells us what the word nostalgia means, we all kind of, we understand it, right? We, it makes sense. It's tangible to us. It's real. It's a real word. Um, right. and I wish I could think of some superfluous superfluous word <laughs> that. We all just kind of go, whatever. But, you know, I discard those words because they don't matter to me. But I'm sure that there are plenty of words in the English language that don't really matter that much to me. They seem like nonsense words or kind of made-up words that don't really matter. And uh, I would classify those as less real. Well, it, it, we need to distinguish between you the the how frequently a word is used, and then the usefulness. Because the word the is probably one of the most 
used words, but it's not especially useful. You could argue bicycle is way more useful because we do understand it. It's a representative of an idea, and the word mm -hmm. the is not representative of any particular idea or construct, abstract or concrete. So it's just yeah, not, not on its own. It requires other words to be useful to. Right. Write. Right. And so, I mean, I guess the question, what makes a word real is a bit disingenuous because words aren't real. Like people are real. And then we pour ourselves into words. You know, we create them, um, whether they were created long and long ago or, or currently like John Koenig and, and that, that's what's interesting. I think we make the mistake of thinking about words as somehow almost holy, you know, as if as if it's existed um, independent of humanity, you know. I mean, mm. obviously, when you start to think about it, of course, you've had to identify something. Chair, then we need a term for this. We need to, connect, you know, bridge these gaps and we develop them. It becomes useful and then we use it. And then we don't if it stops being useful. So it's just, it's neat to link humanity and words and the relationship between thought and words and words and thought and how they inform each other. Um, and then how you, if you introduce a term, I mean, we're, we're full of political terms today. Like you, you introduce the word microaggression. What does that do? I mean, for instance, the word sonder, uh, when you hear it, if you've had that experience before, your brain lights up and says, yes, I identify that. Or potentially, you've never had that thought before, mm -hmm. but now you more readily identify uh, elements of Sonder in your own life. So the right. same would, so take the word microaggression, uh, very abstract, right? It's about message received, arguably about the message received more than it is about the message delivered, right? Like, well, can, can you give an example of this? Uh, so, you know, you give me a dirty look during uh, a meeting, or I interpret your dirty look as a reflection on, we'll just say something safe, like my height. And so I, I suspect, I've heard rumors that maybe Bennett doesn't like tall people. And so... I say something in a meeting, you flash me a look of disagreement, and I interpret that as a microaggression against my height. Or, uh, and, and I guess the difficulty is it's difficult to dispel. If you say, I don't know what you're talking about, I, the counter, and this is part of, the, I believe that microaggressions are like, oh, whether you meant to or not, that look was clearly received by me as a microaggression against my height. And you might mm -hmm. not even know you're doing it. You, you know, you interrupted yeah. my sentence and there, and it's because you, you have, it's ingrained in your culture to be against tall people. And so therefore you don't even know you're doing it, but that's not really important. What's important is that I feel you were being, uh, aggressive on a small, I guess uh, that's what the micro, on a small scale you might not even be aware of. So it's difficult right. for you to even know when you are or to defend your, you can't defend yourself. I think that's the nefarious, a little bit insidious component mm. of a term like this. Sure. So is that a fair definition? Uh, I mean, maybe I'm not representing it well. Like what, I, I, obviously I mean, that, I'm, I'm that, having that, bias and it. it sounds like I'm against uh, my, which, which frankly, uh, it, you know, it's difficult think there's any problem with saying you're against the idea of a microaggression i mean it sounds it, it sounds 
But I, I want to give it a fair shake of a definition before I critique it. And well, I, I suppose d- I intertwine well, my critique into my definition. Critiquing the idea and the usage of the idea is not the same as critiquing the, ter- the term existing. I mean, the, the word is real. It classifies this particular interaction or behavior that you've just illustrated. So you know, it's, a, it's a valid term or, or word. Uh, but that doesn't mean we have to agree with the use of the idea, right? So someone participating in either giving or receiving a microaggression, uh, we don't have to agree with the way that's played out. But the well, word still exists. Right, definitely. I just do you think I gave it a fair shake of a definition? Yeah. I, I think so. Um I think that um maybe the the most generous way to, to describe it would be that it is um it is an offense an offense given whether consciously or not. Maybe that might be it. Just an offense given whether consciously or not. Um, is a microaggression, um, but I guess that 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 would mean that like someone shooting shooting you the bird would be a microaggression, and that seems more just like an aggression. So probably with some cap on it. Would you um, like to hear Google's definition? Oh yeah, yeah, sure. A microaggression is a term used for brief and commonplace daily verbal, behavioral, or environmental indignities, whether intentional or unintentional, that communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative prejudicial slights and insults toward any group. So a pretty good definition that I gave, broad. or at least example I gave. The yeah. intentional or unintentional is, is right. I think, the, the, the most dang, important part. The most important and dangerous, and dangerous. part. Yeah. Because... Honestly, by introducing a term into our lexicon and say, okay, that that means we're going to more readily identify whatever the experience is, whether it's Sonder or microaggressions. So Mm -hmm. you train people within a culture to spot microaggressions. What's going to happen? You're going to actually enhance the number of, or you're going to elevate the number of people who feel they are the victims of microaggressions, right? Because you're more likely to go spot it in other people than you're going to... I mean, I guess a positive could be that you start to reflect on your own microaggressions. Oh, I realized I'm doing this and I didn't even know I was doing it. So it can highlight some of your own flaws. But by and large, it's obvious to me that the when you introduce a term like that, they're going to go spot it being done to them and kind of elevate... Uh, this uh, a victim status, which I think uh, can I just don't know if you want to train and t- you know when it comes to self talk and the narratives you create for yourself, mm-hmm. uh, spotting people taking jabs at you whether or not they're intentional or unintentional or real or not real. Right. I think that that can create sort of a defensive, um, possibly conspiratorial like behavior. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think one of the important things just for just for um everyone to just get along at the most basic level is a presumption of goodwill that we assume that people's missteps are done out of ignorance or or just um maybe they're having a bad day, it's an accident, whatever. We we give them the benefit of the doubt. Um right. we we presume goodwill on the part of other people. Training people in this microaggression language, it, it reinforces the idea that other people don't 
have goodwill, that maybe their faux pas, their their missteps are a result of something negative, either intentional prejudice or or unintentional prejudice, prejudice, which is still bad. Um, it, but it, there is a difference, and this is a step towards saying there's not a difference. Like yeah. like. Uh, benefit well, of the doubt be damned. It doesn't matter right. if it was intentional or not. And that's part of the movement of a microaggression is doesn't matter whether you meant to or not. Doesn't right. matter what message you intended to communicate. It's the right. message that I received. And, and right. by my understanding, very basically, when you have speaker, audience, message, purpose, this is what goes on in this sort of rhetorical triangle, speaker, audience, and message. And you can think that all of those things combined equal purpose, right? So. Okay. So the, there's the message delivered and the message received. But the, the person receiving the message, the duty of the audience, I think, is to try to understand the speaker. That's pretty self-evident, right? Like, So yeah, the speaker's delivering a message to the audience. The audience's job is to decipher that message, to understand that message. Um, and like you said, a presumption of goodwill is, uh, at least from my understanding, the best way to approach this and say, okay, I'm going to try to understand that you're communicating a message. What is it you're trying to tell me? Because if I get into this business of, doesn't matter what you're trying to tell me, what's the overarching, like, what is my, what is my view on this and how am I going to interpret your actions? If I'm, mm-hmm. if I'm saying speaker be damned here, like, then I'm just going to insert whatever I want to. Like, speaker's intentions don't matter anymore. And so then it becomes all about me and my narrative that I want to create, whether you meant it or not. And that's mm-hmm. just, that's not a, that's well, not a no give and take. Com- yeah, there's no give and take. There's no real communication going on there. Uh, you, you kind of just illustrated the point that I was, that I was thinking about and, and I was, I was going to try to make is that, um, you know, kind of. I, I think that anyone, even even the proponents of this sort of microaggression kind of culture, would agree that the key to bridging our differences between groups or or belief systems or whatever is communication. Um, the ability to understand each other, sort of a, a a live and let live, or or in the worst case, a a live and make you live the way I also live. <laughs> in in either of those two cases, there must be communication that happens. Um, and this microaggression type type situation is one that discourages communication uh, because it it automatically tallies up the 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 perpetrator, the wrongdoer, and and the victim before any communication happens, any reflection happens over what was actually said. Um, and I don't think that that is healthy. So it's clear that this term can be detrimental. Uh, obviously, introducing it makes people... I mean, it's really affirmation that when you introduce a term into our uh, collective lexicon. language, our lexicon, then then it does shape behavior. Like, we always think that words... We have these thoughts, then we develop them to shape uh to, we, we need to articulate these thoughts so we develop a word for it. And so words are simply representations of our thought. But mm-hmm. the reality is you introduce a term, then it starts to shape the way we think. So there is a reciprocal or a, like a bouncing back and forth of thoughts or words do begin to shape thought just as much as, not just as much, but to some degree it, it shapes right. thoughts and thoughts obviously shape words. Yes. Well, yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. Um, I, I don't think that we should get carried away thinking that the existence of words will will 
cause <laughs> it will enslave us exactly because that road kind of leads us to a censorship area where we say okay the ideas that we deem bad are not to be used because then people are going to fall down that pathway and will have bad you know bad outcomes people start using these bad words will have bad outcomes i don't think that that's the way to go um well, inflating words with actions, too. Like, we need to understand that words are representative of thoughts. And there just is a difference between thoughts and actions. I suppose that could be a debate for another time. I'm not quite yeah. prepared for that. But to me, if there's not a clear delineation between a thought and an action, and I get that thoughts can lead to actions and it can create a gray area, of, but it, particularly when it comes to legislating, we have to just... There needs to be a, a it needs there needs to be a line drawn in the sand. Very clear. Our yeah, thought, sure. no, our thoughts, no thought actions. Crimes. Yeah. yeah, our thoughts, actions. <laughs> uh, the answer needs to definitively be no, at least from a legal perspective. I can understand when you get into the humanities and talking about well, uh, you know what leads to actions it's clearly thoughts we don't just go around like zombies like we think things we reach conclusions um and then we act upon them or we act impulsively uh but but obviously thoughts and actions are very interrelated and it's interesting to to tease out those differences or similarities or the relationship between the two but right. but to conflate the two as being the same well then it then we have a culture where i can say something mean or hateful to you and then you can punch me because i've committed violence against you because if yeah, words is, are violence then then you know we've yeah, lost which is preposterous <laughs> i mean like uh, i i think that why why has you know that the childhood rhyme gone out of style sticks and stones may break my bones but words will never hurt me like why 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 has that gone out of style like you, is that a rhetorical question or you want me to try to respond to that because I think I have a thought pop in my go, head. Yeah, go ahead then. Um, th- that I like what that that nursery rhyme is teaching us, right? That there's a big difference, and you can't let words get to you. Um, there's a there's something definitive about saying, "But words will never hurt me," and that that that's simply not true. So. Is there danger and maybe the simplicity? It's a childhood well, rhyme, so it's hard to hold it to some standard. But when you say words will never hurt, and then you go, but it does. So therefore, I guess we're going to throw out the baby with the trash sorry. water. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push back on you a little bit. Do words ever hurt you? I mean, Emotionally, because, clearly. What? Emotionally, very much yes. So, well, But Why? Because really, all all uh, as we've been talking about the whole time, words they're just they're just representations of ideas, and and then you know at the more physical level, it's just some vibrations of sound waves going into your ears or some light waves going into your eyes. A word cannot hurt you, like it actually cannot hurt you. The ideas that the word conveys they they can be emotionally harmful or psychologically harmful but that requires you to lend the words some amount of power if you don't like if 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 uh if someone just strings together some some line of invective and hands it to me on a postcard and and it they're talking about me and list, calling me every name in the book that's not going to hurt me why because i lend those words no power right. those the, those words cannot affect me um, and so 
if if it's the case that the same word could be used in two different contexts, one just handed to me randomly on a postcard and one used by uh, someone close to me, and the word can have two different effects, doesn't that suggest that the power isn't in the word itself? It's in the person and the way that they're using it? Yes, I mean, I totally agree with that. So so if we were to do some test where we videoed me going out to strangers and going, F you, in their face, some are going to be a little confused and like, what are you, what? And then walk away, and some might uh-huh. want to fight. And so sure. the fact that if, if it were truly harm, if the words caused harm, um, then, then we'd see this uh, some a similar degree of pain inflicted upon all the individuals. So it takes their recognition how, how seriously they take the words. Um, so based on this, it sounds like we have two at least at least two paths of um, development of uh, uh, how to respond. How do we respond to words? Path one is. Um, restrict the words that we can use therefore no one can use these words as a weapon against me path two is learn how to defend against words if if a word in different contexts can be received a different way then we focus on ourselves and learn how to build up our defense our ability to deal with words that come in and that second path sounds like the more correct way to deal with things oh yeah clearly because we cannot have or we it's foolhardy to try and control other people's actions, like to, to concentrate on what influence you have. So how do you receive words and what do you do when you don't like them or they're inflammatory or whatever is is far more important. Um, but I also think it's silly to say, I don't want to say silly, um, if you were to attack me, like Bennett, if you were to insult me in whatever way you want it, and you meant it, um, and then my feelings were hurt, which seems reasonable, uh, to go, well, well, Daniel, you, you're just being soft. You're letting Bennett hurt you is a little like, like, because we have a relationship, um, of course, when you come to me and say something, just baseline level of respect is I'm going to, when you're saying something, I'm going to listen. I'm going to hear the words you're saying. I'm going to take them with some degree of seriousness. Now, if some homeless guy comes out and trash talks me and says, Dude, that's so offensive. Uh, I shouldn't say ho- a stranger even, but like, I just, Trans- I'm just trying transient. to think of, yeah, <laughs> I'm so hurt right now. I'm sorry I hurt you. Everyone's that's hurt. That's a microaggression. So. <laughs> no, I, I don't know why I even said home. I just mean that someone, uh, just some, irate some, person, yeah. turns and starts spewing. Now, what if they say something that maybe maybe I'm a little bit sensitive to, like, "Oh, you have a big nose and you're balding" or something like that? And there's some truth. <laughs> there's some truth to it beyond beyond the. I mean, they they looked at me, they assessed it, and they 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 tapped into some. Your poetry sucks. Your, <laughs> There's no clarity through obfuscation in your poetry, <laughs> micro poems. You're more like micro suckiness, um, <laughs> macro suckiness. Um, anyway, yeah. like so, they tap into something. That's what. The, okay, so that's actually like a YouTube commenter like assesses something you've created and says it sucks mm. and offers criticisms that they that may be valid. You don't know them, but like it taps into something. So to say, oh, just ignore it is a lot easier said than done. Now it's good to train yourself to not be driven crazy by 
particularly commenters uh, from you know that can hide an anonymity behind that mask. Um, mm-hmm. I think so. maybe the important thing is you train yourself to to separate invective from from ideas. You know, if if I was if I was insulting you, if I was saying something that hurt your feelings, then you would want to be able to distinguish between if I am if I'm just angry and I'm throwing mean words at you or whether I'm truly critical of something important and deep. If I'm really trying to communicate something to you and you're offended or your feelings are hurt by that, it's important to be able to distinguish those two. If I just say, oh, you're being an idiot, then then if you took that to heart and you and you thought, wow, Bennett, like he thinks he's superior to me and that I am stupid – Mm-hmm. That's an incorrect assessment of what you know of of what I did. Um, whereas if I have if if I have some serious remark um, or I say something to you that that truly hurts your feelings and it's not just a throwaway like that, well, you need to be able to distinguish those two things. So I totally agree. But our emphasis has been on the audience's job of what's the audience's job when receiving the message. But we we also have to keep in mind that. There is some onus on the speaker to say if you want to communicate effectively, what's you know attract more flies with honey or whatever. Like how do you how are you the mo- most persuasive? How do you hopefully operate with a presumption of goodwill? But how do you gain additional goodwill, particularly when you want to offer a criticism and you want it to ultimately promote change, right? So if I have an issue with you or our friendship, I want to change that. And I know going in, this is going to be a difficult conversation. Um, it would be foolish to just say, well, it's been its responsibility to simply deal with my unapologetic criticisms, right? Like, like, isn't my job to package it the best way to promote that change and like, and deliver it with a respectful tone? Is that fair? Um, I'm, I'm not sure if I would say it's your job, um, I would say, though, that, or, or I would certainly acknowledge that we aren't just robots exchanging, exchanging words. Like there, there is uh, an amount of social agreement that we all have in our communication, and there is a way to navigate that web skillfully. Uh, and so, certainly, the way you present your ideas, uh, the tone in which you present them. All of that has an effect on how well your message is received. Um, it's because we're not robots that we have to engage in that sort of thing. Right, um, and it's why I would change my message. Like You are less sensitive than the average person. I can speak more frankly or, or blunt to you, perhaps, than I would to a friend who demonstrate sensitivities in a particular area that I'm going to, I'm going to, I don't want to say sugarcoat because it sounds like I'm amending the truth, but what mm-hmm. I'm going to do is package that truth in the most palatable form. I'm going to right. deliver you're probably, it. You're probably going to lead into your point gradually rather than present your point up front and then explain why. Yes, fair, yeah. Which, like, I think is kind of a distinction between between you and I. Typically the approach that I take with people is I present my point up front almost in a shock value kind of way, and mm-hmm. then... I explained to them how I got there, um, and and you, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you know are a little bit more delicate about things and sort of ease into the topic leading up to your final point. Yeah, I, I mean, 
Yes and no. I would just say that. Like, well, you obviously, were just we saying both it's, we we use both strategies, right? Both but, of us do. But I will. I will. In delivering my message, I will put the audience. Uh, I will elevate their the priority, or I will. Con- is it just? I could just say I'll think of the audience a little more than you would. Maybe. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm like more considerate or anything. Maybe I don't know what to say. Like like I am going to think. How? What are their sensitivities? How well, can I best just, deliver? Yeah, this? you're you're just more empathetic to your audience. You're considering more how how they receive it and trying to cater what you say to them. Whereas I am more focused generally on the on, on the content of my message. I and if they receive it correctly, great. Then they succeeded, and if they didn't, that's too bad. They failed at receiving my message. Right, base, to put it harshly. <laughs> they failed at your message. It's funny. It's really funny to frame it that. It, it actually falls into. Does this fall into that that tendency that men are interested in things and women are interested in people? I mean, to because put it, you're I'm, interested in people. I'm more feminine. I'm more feminine. <laughs> or this is a feminine trait. I mean, it's a little bit silly and it's a it's um, oversimplified I, I don't dichotomy. Think, I don't, but like that is that. I don't think that, that applies here. I don't know. I think that the idea well, that I'm interested that idea, in that. I mean that. That idea is based off of querying women and querying men. We can't we can't apply that to you and me because we're both men. So Right. Fair enough. That, but what I mean is that my interest in conversation is the people and the connection and and your I would argue that your in you know with the things of course with the content. Like I'm interested in the content too, but like the reason I come together is that connection and I would say that you come together for the content and then you know icing on the cake is the connection and it's inverse for me um yeah m- maybe so yeah um i mean i think that this is all kind of lumped together in complex psychology right that i'm oversimplifying um, terribly i know but well it's just and an so thing. if we did have to break it down then then i think like it comes to the in in the big five the categorization of personality aspects uh there's the agreeableness trait mm-hmm. And I think that's basically where where we would differ. Um, you're you're more agreeable than than I am, and and also uh, in in the broader sense, women are generally more agreeable than men. Um, I, I forget the the breakdown. It's something like sixty forty, something like right, that. Right. That tends to be the breakdown of differences in gender, right? At least within um, the I don't want to say within the bell curve. I know that's not the right <laughs> right framing. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think if I remember correctly, for agreeableness, it is sixty forty women to men, meaning that um, uh, if you let's see, how do you explain it? If you pick a uh, a random uh, a random man and a random woman out of the population, and you had to decide which one was more agreeable, and you pick the woman, you would be right sixty percent of the time. Right is the the right way to frame that. Um, but that would be the trait where we disagree because I am I am just less concerned with politeness in that sense. So you can subdivide agreeableness into compassion and politeness. Yeah, and, conflict avoidance and stuff like that too. Right, and I'm just less uh, I'm less concerned with that. Uh, and and I'm happy. And but at the same time, one of the other traits is conscientiousness. I'm willing to persist and actually come to an understanding i think that's what that's what keeps me from just being a a complete jerk uh like people may (laughs) people may think i'm a jerk initially because i present this 
idea rather bluntly, but then I'm willing to sit there and talk about it and come to an ultimate understanding. And that's what, actually, I really like that flow because to me it ends things on a really solid note. Like if you can start off with people uncertain and end in complete agreement, that's a really good feeling. And, and to me it comes away feeling like you've bonded under, uh, under pressure rather than on the flip side, uh, if you are trying to ease people into your point to the end, maybe you have them walking along the way and nodding along to you and, and the vibe is good. And then you end and at this, even at the end, you've managed to, to convince them for the moment and they're nodding their head, but when they walk away, will they still agree with yeah, you? It's the staying power. It's like which yeah, one right. is going to promote long term. I don't want to say change, but just a long term agreement. Yeah, right, right. And so again, like I, I don't exclusively use that strategy, and you don't exclusive exclusively use the other strategy. We use a mix of both. But I don't know for whatever reason, I, I kind of I like putting I like stating my my thought up front and then explaining even if it can you know raise some hackles initially and again this comes with the caveat that usually i talk to i i talk to people that i'm relatively close with like i don't just like go talk to strangers and, and take that approach necessarily right you'll be higher on the polite end if if given this new the stranger or whatever uh the less you know them the more you will respect uh social boundaries yeah uh i would say for me personally anyway that uh, then this would i think be another difference from you is that if i have um if i'm around strangers and there's a topic and i have a strong opinion or an opinion that i sense might not be uh, agreed with i would just i would probably just not say the opinion um depending on the circumstance rather than try to say the opinion politely um that would probably be my course of action. Would just be to avoid avoid the situation rather than uh, than say the opinion to strangers and have to battle it out with them. I don't know what I would do. I mean, it's context specific, of course, it's and how I'm It's Really context but, specific. But, so. but I could see myself trying to politely say it. I could see myself avoiding. Um, I can't see myself bluntly stating it. So, mm-hmm. um, want to talk about skiing? Yeah, I want to. I want to get your thoughts on uh, on skiing. So um, I know that at the time we did our last podcast, it was before our week long ski trip to Telluride, Colorado. Yep. Uh, and you had never been skiing before, right? And uh, so I was really interested in how the experience would go for you and w- what you would think of it. So. We're back now. What what did you think? All right, let me walk you through it. Um, well, first of all, I had, I mean, I like to frame it this way. It's a bit exaggerated, but I'd essentially not ever seen vast amounts of snow. I had there was like a 1998 like snowstorm in 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 Georgia when I where I grew up, but basically I had not seen where it regularly snows and that a town that is equipped, you know, with the they salt the sidewalks and have chains on the tires. Basically, a place that. Has, that understands snow. So this was my first time navigating a town like that for any length of time, and it was beautiful. I mean, the place was gorgeous. Um, I'm not well equipped to deal with cold, so I brought so many jackets in anticipation <laughs> of trying to, you know, the cold avoidance factor, 
Uh, and the irony being, like, whenever you're skiing or whenever you're moving around, of course your body produces heat, and I would get really sweaty. So I did not need nearly the, um, the amount of layers as I thought, um, even though it was difficult for me to to internalize that and believe that, because when you walk out and it's 27 degrees, I mean, that is hard to, that is just, that's hard to deny that it's very, very, very cold. Uh, so your nose and your fingers and extremities like that get cold, but so I would layer up. So that ended up not being an issue, but, uh, okay. So first time skiing, let me, let me give you my impressions. So putting my foot in the boot was very difficult. Uh, a lot, it was a lot tighter than anticipated because I, you know, you need it to be firm and it needs to stabilize your ankles. Um, even attaching to the ski was not quite as fluid as I thought, which is a bit annoying because I want to go in there and I want to be successful. I understand you're not going to get on skis for the first time and be an expert, but, uh, you want, you want to do well. You want to, you want things to go smoothly leading up to that. I mean, I think there's this, when you, you imagine what something's going to be like, you, you forget how intensely physical, reality is so you imagine going skiing and you forget that you know like walking in the snow isn't easy or you can imagine even that you can try to get there but then when you're doing it it's just yeah it's that it's that the gap between experience and thought like you can there's something experiential in 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 the actuality of it happening so I, I make my way up, uh, getting on the skis for the very first time. And like you had told me and other people had told me, you're not going to have trouble staying up in terms of balance. It's not like you're going to wobble and fall left or right. What you're going to have trouble with is controlling yourself and you know g- the speed and when to turn and how to do that. But you're not just going to find it like a, like a skateboard or something where you could just feel your knee shaking and you're going to fall off. I, I had trouble believing that honestly because Mm -hmm. it just it didn't i don't know it it seemed like i'm still could be the guy who falls over somehow so i get on the skis and i recognize instantly that you were right like i'm not going to fall over these are long planks you're you're just not going to fall over um and then what i guess i didn't anticipate upon my initial movements is you you're really gliding on on snow, like you're gliding on ice, and I, that's a sensation. Yeah. It's a sensation that you cannot replicate through an intellectual exercise. You cannot just imagine the sensation of gliding on snow, and and understand what that means. And so it it happens in that moment, and and I mean, for your first time skiing ever, the minute your skis are moving even a few inches just the how easily they're they're flowing over the top and you're it's a it's a wow moment in your head it's a it's a whoa this this is unique and obviously you're going to pick up you're going to pick up quite a bit of uh speed and so i started to go first time down we're talking bunny slopes and my first time down ever and i was I, i picked up quite a bit of speed realized I'm, I'm out of control and uh i fell within you know i'd say 50 yards or or less maybe 25 yards i don't know i'm not good at estimating that stuff not too far but it was mm-hmm. fine it was actually exhilarating it was how uh how painful did you find the the fall oh not at um, all this fall was it was powdery snow and i you had told me that it wouldn't be painful. I had my doubts about that too because I don't care what you say. Like when people fall from, 
I mean, it's it's not it, it is padded naturally, but it's not pad like it, snow. Um, but obviously, it's a cushion, but it's not by design a cushion. Like scientists didn't get together, create a cushion that is meant for falling on, and then <laughs> you know that's right. what. It, so so. I just had my doubts about that, but it was nothing. It was virtually nothing to fall. Um, and the skis popped off pretty easily and, uh, actually getting back up and, and getting my, you know, snow gets into the boot, not into the boot, like as in your foot, but like, like caked on the bottom and it has to clamp. And so I was struggling a bit to clamp it back. Uh, you know, just, just ironing out these logistics. Um, Mm -hmm. so after two or three falls, uh, near the end of the bunny slope. This is still my very first time down, and I'm pretty tired because falling and getting up, and it's it's a laborious uh, effort to do all of this. You're and I'm sweating because I have way too many layers on. My <laughs> goggles are fogging. I'm pretty intensely uncomfortable. I'm not pissed. I'm not mad at the world or anything. I'm thinking this is just part of the process. Even yeah. though I I'm in relatively good shape right now, and and I was out of breath. I mean, part of that's the um, the height, altitude. Uh, the altitude being there, and part of it was uh, no matter how much you're working out, even if you're doing squats and things, it, you're exercising different muscles, getting you know from falling from from being down to getting up, and if the skis don't pop off, there's like an awkwardness and a and I'm just the weird amount of height lankiness that my center of gravity it just it's not easy to do so i was having yeah. uh, a pretty comical time getting up you had to help it was me. pretty yeah. funny and to like, watch you try to stand well up. i felt i felt desperately unathletic in those moments and i don't claim to be some superior athlete but i'm not unathletic and i felt uh I, I, <laughs> it was just embarrassing basically it was like why well, can't i do this and you would demonstrate here do it like this and you would do it yeah. and i I'm not an idiot. I can see what you're doing. Oh, just do that. And I, I, I couldn't. And it wasn't out of weakness. It was out of, it was balance. It was well, a balance it, thing. Yeah. In, in your defense, like, uh, it is like when you fall down and the skis are still attached to your boots, it is kind of tricky to get yourself back up, especially if you're not on a very steep slope, if you're relatively flat. Because, or or let's just say it's a shallow slope like it was. If you aim your skis down slope, then when you try to stand up, your skis start sliding out from right, under you. Right, and that's If you face backwards, it's even worse because then you're going the wrong way. <laughs> so you have to you have to align your skis perpendicular to the slope first off, and then if your feet are too wide, then you don't have enough leverage to get yourself up because you don't have enough strength in one leg to push yourself your whole body weight up at that awkward angle. Right. So there's a particular orientation that you have to put your skis in in order to make it easier for you to stand up. You have to put your skis perpendicular to the slope, close together, and then you have to kind of push yourself up from your side. And it's an unnatural way to get up. You never get up like that in, you know, in most of the circumstances of your day-to-day life. Exactly. So it takes practice even to learn how to, to stand up. And, you know, like, that's, it's also tiring. Trying to stand up the wrong way is exhausting uh, because you're trying to use all the strength of your legs and you can still not manage to get up. Right. So, you know, you, you get tired very quickly. So, and there's a, there's um, a quick, my understanding, there's a quick learning curve on all this. But like you said, yeah. it ha- you have to familiarize yourself. There's a particular orientation to do all of this. It's different. It's unique. And so you just have to go through the experience, test your environment, test your body, see what you're doing right and wrong. And, and I want to be clear that on this first 
go, I uh, was learning from each fall. I was like, okay, uh, how to pizza, to what degree, to angle the skis, to dig into whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And so it occurs to me that I wasn't really digging in. I was just putting my sp- skis in a triangle way and I didn't think about, oh, well, what you're, what are you really trying to do? You're trying to create more friction to slow yourself down. You got to dig in a little bit. And so right. nearing the end of this particular bunny slope, it, it, there's a, it, it increases in steepness, nothing dramatic. It felt dramatic to me though, to be clear that, that, uh, without being able to turn or do the Sing or whatever that you call it. Yeah. Um, like I was, I was up, I was doing better. I'd stayed up longer than I'd stayed before. And I was increasing my speed speed and I was hell bent on actually pizzaing correctly to slow down this time. Uh and I basically <laughs> pizzaed to the point of going up over my skis, kind of doing a flip, uh where the skis I saw them over my head kind of thing. And uh landed on my knees as they were if you can imagine when you are are pizzaing, your knees are bent inward in a in right. an awkward kind of way. And yep. I, I landed on them, uh, particularly my left knee. Um and in that moment I thought, Oh, this could be trip ruining. I really hope it isn't. Uh to which I made it to the bottom, uh took the lift back up, decided to go examine it. It was in, I was in pain, but it wasn't so severe that I was needing to be carried down or anything like that. Uh, and, um, after lunch, after sitting, it seemed to swell up a bit or it seemed a bit stiff. And I said, all right, well, I'll call it a day. And tomorrow I'll hit the slopes again. It's a little bit embarrassing. And then to make a long story short, which we've already kind of made it long, um, (laughs) I woke up and it had swollen and was like, oh, well, I'm definitely not going today, uh, but hopefully it'll go down. And I kept hoping day after day that the swelling would go down. And here we are two, three weeks later, and my knee still hurts quite a bit. Um, (laughs) And it's my um, MCL. uh, It it's was strained i don't think it was it's terrible sprained sprained i I would say i'm at about i don't know how to give a percentage of recovery but it is recovering ever ever so slowly painstakingly slowly um i think the swelling settled into the joints if that's a thing and it will it's interrupted my sleep every night since this happened um nearly three weeks ago so, oh, that sucks. It sucks so bad. And I didn't uh, yeah, so my first time skiing, I fell on the bunny slopes and didn't get to go back out and so I don't know how to ski. <laughs> man, yeah, that's uh it's disappointing. I was I was uh cuz I I enjoy skiing a lot. Like uh there have been a few times when I've said that skiing is maybe the most fun like like uh outdoor activity that i've ever done that's just so so much fun and um like that you're in a beautiful surrounding and you get the feel of going fast or of turning you can you can feel yourself pulled around by by inertia um and uh like there's 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 a cool factor to it And, and you know for us who have always kind of been in the southeast there's a rarity to it as well 
So it's just this really, really cool thing, and I was really excited for you to to go try it out and, and have this experience. Um, and so, like, it really sucked when on your first day of the five days that we were going to ski, like, on your first run down before lunch, like, uh, well, no more skiing. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's almost a joke. It is laughable. It's something I will laugh about. Um, I mean, because we, we did it right, too. Going to Telluride, like, top three in the country. We stayed in a ski-out-the-door place. We we blew it out. We spent some real money, um, and and we were going to do it right. Like, you're, if you're going to do it, do it right kind of attitude, and uh, I did it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, man, that's just, that's what's so annoying is that, like, I really don't, I really don't think you did, you didn't do anything wrong. It was just... One, it was just an accident. I mean, like you expect an inexperienced skier to fall. Right. Every inexperienced right, it could have happened to anyone. Falls. It really, it wasn't some foolish thing where I'm kicking myself and said, "Oh, I should have just." I mean, this was just a freak little accident, and luckily, right. it's not right. going to impair I mean, me for the rest you were of my even life. Doing, you were even doing what you were supposed to, trying to learn how to, to to pizza to slow yourself down. It's just that you know, whenever you're trying something new, you're, you inevitably make a mistake at it. And you made a mistake when you were pizzaing. It just turns out that that's the one that, that hurt your knee. So really unfortunate. It, it shifted um, the trip, I would say from a, I'm going to learn something new type of trip to a character test type of trip. Cause you can imagine, okay, imagine you go with four of your other buddies. I mean, you were on the trip. You don't have to imagine, but, um, right. And you're going to go do this fun thing. It's an activity-based trip, and woohoo! I'm going to get this new experience. And then all of a sudden, I'm in a position of my, the, you know, my four friends are leaving every day to go skiing, and I'm not only stuck in the cabin, um, but also in pain. I mean, that that with, pain is such a an intense. Again, I think I used this phrase earlier, but an intensely physical experience it's so immediate like we can sit here on this podcast and we can philosophize and and talk abstractly and examine cool ideas ow (laughs) sorry i was just thinking about pain (laughs) but you can't anyway what were you gonna say my point was you weren't gonna you're not able to conceptualize pain realistically well (laughs) the the immediacy of pain uh uh touche but but you're you're not able to just Thing, you're not able. It sucks the life out of everything. Like food isn't as good if you're in pain. Sleep, you know, conversation. None of it matters yeah. if there's. I mean, a it's almost pain. by design the best distraction there is. Yes, because it's your body saying, "Pay attention to me. Stop everything you're doing and address this need you have." And so when yeah. you're in that, so I, I really, I really uh, pity or, or or I have empathy for those in um, pity the fools that are in, in pain. chronic pain. I pity the. <laughs> I pity the fool. Um, if you're in chronic pain, my God, like how you... You pity the pain you, fools. <laughs> you pity the painful so, experiences the painful, that painful people have. Fools, the painful pain, the fools full of pain, the pain. Anyway, um, I, yes, I just, I think it, 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 I won't say lessens your humanity, but it lessens the joys, everything. I mean, you're muted. You have to concentrate and put your physical efforts into this. And so I'm trying to on this trip say instead of just become embittered and mad that i've spent some money and this and that and my friends get to go out and have fun and i don't um and to be clear my pain was not on the level of someone in a chronic habitual pain that is yeah, yeah, yeah it sure. really it is just a throbbing and aching yeah and but from sore. your from your perspective like compared to the pain you feel on a day-to-day level it, it was 
far more than right. the norm. It's this incessant pain that is there that I and, I, and I have a habit of over-talking. So one of the things, if whatever's pressing in my life, I like to share that. So if I'm in pain, uh, it could be almost intolerable. I have to, I have to tell myself, stop, stop trying to get others to, to understand, right? They understand intellectually you're in pain. They're not going to be able to understand what you're going through. So you don't have to mention or give updates all the time. And, and I didn't do very well at that. Um, but I, because, you know, it's hard not to just talk about. Um, uh, I actually, I don't really think anyone, uh, at least from my perspective, no one seemed to be annoyed that you were talking about your knee too much. In fact, I think everyone was pretty, pretty consistently concerned and hopeful that uh, that you would continue to give updates you know, in the hopes that it would be well enough to ski. Yeah, well, I will say everyone was super nice to me, including even people at Telluride. They ended up giving me a discount, or not a discount, a complete refund on the lift, which is not their protocol. In fact, it says no no refunds on their ticket for any reason, mm-hmm. pretty much, and they were nice. They could scan it, see that I only took it one ski lift one time, so I got the full <laughs> refund. Uh yeah, my friends were nice. Um, so I tried to say, okay, and this is a helpful, we talk about self-talking like we were talking earlier about how if you train yourself to be a victim, well, then you're, or if you talk to yourself like you're a victim, you'll become one. So I was trying to say, all right, well, how can I, how can you handle this with, with a lot of character or like to view it as a character test and say, well, how can I find the enjoyment or the beauty or the, just what, what can I, what can I take from this and, and, mm-hmm. and, and what can I do with it? And so I tried, um, I'd say with like mediocre success. I mean, I had fun with the, the thing is the, the slopes closed at four. So you guys, it's not like I was waiting around till 10 o'clock at night or something like that right, for you guys right. to come back at four o'clock. You were back. And, and a lot of us were in and out throughout the day Right, you come well. back for lunch. I mean, it's not like I was sitting there lonely. Um, yeah, but with a ski slope right outside the window and, and a lift the skier, always in view. Constantly watching the skiers. Yeah, that, yeah. Was, that was, it was, it was a tease. The whole thing was just a big, giant tease. So I think uh, in your situation, I, prob- I probably would have been uh, more, more annoyed than, than you were. Um, although I will say that getting the refund for the stuff would have eased my annoyance quite a bit because a lot of my annoyance would have been I just wasted hundreds of dollars and I'm not even getting to use it. Like, this is money, you know, essentially just burned up right. for no purpose. Getting the refund eases that a lot. It, and Yes. Um, Especially when I before I asked, I had already, and I think this is appropriate, adjusted my expectations. They're going to say no, but what could it hurt? Um, sure, right. Well... Hopefully, anyway, like you said earlier, we spent real money, and I mean, well, it was real money, but overall, the trip wasn't extraordinarily expensive, and minus those costs, it was, and it's still expensive, but not extraordinarily so, so hopefully, you still at least managed to retain some value from the trip, getting to go to a beautiful place and hang out with friends for a while. Yeah, exactly. Hopefully, the money was well spent. Yeah, exactly. I don't regret it. I would go skiing again to try and learn. Um mm-hmm. I don't know that I'd put it on my next trip just because, hey, I want to go experience yeah, I mean, other now things. That I've, it's going to yeah, reset now that I've it gone, for a while. Yeah, yeah, I would want to, um, yeah, for for the next big trip, do, I don't know, something else. It might be I 10 years before I try skiing again, but I'd like, I'd like to do it sooner than that. What, what, do you think, uh, what do you think about scuba diving? Ooh, um, I like it. Never done it. The idea of it's cool. I'm, I'm a little bit, there's a, there's a fear factor that is stronger than... 
than skiing um, in terms of being underwater. You know, the, that's a pr- the danger is so clear right there. Um, I mean, I guess you can argue danger is everywhere, though. It, it certainly doesn't deter me. I just mean that there's a more genuine sense of, oh, my gosh, that's going to be pressing on me in that moment. Uh, but that actually is a thrill too, right? Like it's not. It, right, right. it doesn't deter me. It's an excitement, and um, obviously, you have to go get professional training. I'm pretty sure. Uh, you know, we're not talking yeah, about snorkeling. We're talking about getting yes, that training yeah. done. Uh, it's probably a day's worth of classes before you can go out the next day, if not more. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I think that probably is like a day scuba course or something. I would guess. I don't know. I haven't researched it. It was just kind of. The, something bouncing around in my head for uh, for a future the trip. downside of that though is is um it's mo- more likely to be in a tropical like the good places to scuba dive are going to be in tropical locations and i live in florida and so i don't want to like go to the beach for a vacation sure well i was thinking uh, we're way ahead of this but i was thinking it would be cool to go to australia and and scuba dive wow well, we could even look up let's while there. Why not skydive, scuba dive? Yeah, yeah just sure. Do some I mean, it wouldn't things. just be a like our ski trip was a ski trip. That's what we did. Right. Like, we skied for five days. I don't think I would want to scuba dive for five days. I would probably want to, you know, do whatever training I have to, and then have a day of exploring, where, scuba diving, and it, then after that would be trip. If we went to Australia, we would do things like drink fosters and right and, and get a blooming onion shrimp. yeah get a blooming onion for sure right. go to uh, outback exactly that's uh where where it originated experience I the local so. cuisine <laughs> uh it box a kangaroo i don't know if it whatever you do with a kangaroo i think you box a kangaroo you could ride it maybe you could have their something about their arms yeah they they kick they like box kick punch kick, kick whatever box. kick box that's it there you go um yeah. yeah, all the things Australian. Yeah. Ahoy, mate. Yep. Ahoy, mate. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Pretty sure that's it. That's what you should do when we go visit Australia is everyone you see. Ahoy, Ahoy mate. mate. <laughs> <laughs> Where's the chocolate thunder from down under? <laughs> oh man that's what they name their chocolate cake at Outback and my dad always makes a joke about it sounding like poop yep that's a that's a that sounds like a dad joke yes, for it, sure yes very so. daddish ah oh, man so yeah that was a it was a fun ski trip I, I enjoyed myself as well um one 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 last thought on skiing that kind of kind of struck me when we were out there is just, I was sitting on the lift going up the mountain and I was watching people ski down the slopes, some of the kind of steeper slopes. And I was thinking like skiing is insane. Like (laughs) skiing is is. so low tech, you know, like it is really, you're just strapping some long plank onto your feet and letting gravity do all the work. Right. You could could talk about carbon fiber or whatever the things are made out of, but, but no, it's low tech. It doesn't matter how fancy that wood or that plastic. The difference between like, when the cavemen went skiing, you know, and they like carved out their skis out of trees <laughs> or or animal bones or whatever, like the difference between them and now is not that much. Like, yeah, ours are made of plastic and they can detach from the boots, but that's not that big of a difference. Like, in effect, we they were still like climbing to the top of their caveman mountains and sliding down on their caveman skis, <laughs> and we are just climbing to the top of our normal mountains and skiing down on our normal skis. Right. So, like. 
gravity is doing all the work. You're at the mercy of the laws of physics, and that's the end of it. Like, that's the end of it. Like, these are huge slopes that, you know, span hundreds of meters, and you're just sliding down them. Like you say, like, you're gliding on snow, and you don't think about how slippery it is. And, like, it's a whole different realm of motion that you have to learn how to navigate in. Yeah, I'll say this, too, is I thought for some reason, you know, again, conceptualizing what skiing is, and there are ski slopes, and, and you you understand what they are. But when you get there and you look at it, you're like, yeah, this is literally just they cut down the trees for this mountain path. I mean, it is a yeah. mountain. You are on a mountain. And so it's more obvious when you see a black slope or a double black slope that, I mean, this is nature. Because I can't help but conceptualize skiing as this man-made thing and therefore you kind of like you know it's obviously you didn't build the mountain and build the slope you just let the snow Mm -hmm. fall but i think you forget that it really is a mountain that has cliffs or you know sheer moments and and just it it's it's not is constructed or uh, i think we're just so pampered in our modern lives that everything is um Desi- by design, right? Like by human design. Uh, but when you're out there and there's a dip in this path, it's because, you know, God put it there, not a man. Like, like, like it's natural. It's like it's, you're, on a, you're on a mountain. <laughs> and it's messy and it's imperfect and it's not as polished, even in this beautiful place where it is not that messy. It's still a mountain. Um, all right, so... Uh... There's one thing, one topic that I wanted to bring up for us to talk about. I think there's a lot to talk about. And for this topic, I actually put in some scientific work. Ooh, uh, or, or we could say sociological work anyway. So, um, And also, I happen to know uh, that this is something that we've both had experiences with. So, Hit me with it. Uh, online dating. Woo! No. Well... That's not the res- well. <laughs> Online so, dating, yeah. So t- to begin, um, I guess. Uh, well, let's uh, let's break down some categories okay. here. So with with online dating, I guess in the way it is now, it comes in multiple forms. There are there's kind of the online websites uh, like OkCupid and Plenty of Fish and eHarmony and Match dot com and these sorts of things right. there. They're almost kind of a relic of a bygone era at this point, um, but but that that's one area of online dating. And then there is the app area, and this is things like Tinder and Bumble, Hinge and uh, Badoo and Coffee Meets Bagel I'm not and things like with that. Badoo, but uh, yeah, they definitely these these apps seem far more popular, right? Because of the quick access and the swiping and these sorts of things, right? And, and, you know, the rise of smartphones and, and the, the commonality of smartphones, everyone has one in their pocket, and the apps are more accessible than a website on, on a phone. So that kind of explains why everyone kind of gravitates towards that type of technology over, over the website. So those are the two primary online dating areas, anyway. Um, there, there may be others, like, you know, meetups or some kind of, like, speed dating things or, like... But those are areas that I have not, I haven't been involved in, so I can't really speak to those, right. and I don't think they're as popular either. Um, so, um, I guess to start off, like, uh, well, first off, what are your what are your impressions 
of each of those areas. Like, what's your impression of online dating just in general? Uh, and then if you have any thoughts on the two areas, just to kind of ease us into this thing. Yeah, um, well, I think initially online dating had a taboo surrounding it, so it was this... So when you talk about initially, you're talking about, like, maybe, like, 10 years ago yes, or so. Yes, longer than that, maybe, even, when it was just... It was this... The resistance being, well, what are you not normal enough to get a real date or, like, what... And then when you start actually, you know, delving into it intellectually, it's like, are you going to just take your chance through a blind date through some friends or even just, what, being in a bar at the same time and striking up a conversation? Or does it make more sense to connect through your interests? So online dating, from an intellectual perspective, makes a lot of sense. You can weed out uh, deal breakers and things like that uh, uh, with some immediacy. And, like, when you're at a bar and you want to talk to someone, the thing is there are multiple reasons to be at a bar, to be out with friends, to eat some food, to have some drinks, or to possibly, you know, find a partner. Um, but when you're in an online uh, dating atmosphere, you know that you're all there uh, to to date and to figure that out. So that conversation to to go up and say, hey, I'm, you know, to express interest is within the etiquette uh, and within the social norm of online dating, whereas uh, going up to someone who's just, you know, having a drink with their friends, that could seem intrusive. Um, mm-hmm. And so, and then there's also the the benefit of um, the rejection in person. There's, well, actually, I'd say there's benefit and detriment to this. So mm-hmm. um, being rejected online doesn't hurt as much. Uh, it's not as explicit. I should say that. It's not as explicit. You could be hurt or not hurt, but it's it's different than looking at someone and saying I'm not interested or having to have that conversation with them. Well it seems to me like the reason why it's less it's less hurtful, often less hurtful, is that if you're meeting someone in person, they are seeing more of you than when they're looking at your online profile. So when they're looking at your online profile, you may be able to rationalize away their rejection as, oh, you know, my pictures weren't that good or I didn't explain myself clearly enough or I didn't make the right joke on my profile or whatever. But in person, like you were there and they experienced you and yes, not the totality of you, but they saw you and rejected you. So it feels a little bit more personal. Absolutely. Well, and, uh, and I think this is true of online culture and a bad thing. Uh, women are typically inundated with messages or just men, men seem to storm the market. So it's, I don't know what the stats are and perhaps you even have some of that, but there's a lot more men than women, like not just double, but like triple or quadruple or even more than that. And so mm-hmm. they're having to, you could just say they never saw my message or even by design with these swiping things. If they didn't swipe, they, if you didn't connect with them, you don't know that that's because of a rejection. It could be that they never you know, it never popped up. And so um, it's by design lessening the the um, rejection factor. And that's the, the most, that's the scariest factor for most people entering into dating. But what that's led to is a, a new cultural etiquettes have emerged that it's perfectly acceptable. I wouldn't say polite, but it's, it's acceptable to ghost someone, meaning, you know, not to respond to a message after a while or, or never to respond upon initiation, you know, Hey, how are you? And they don't respond. Like that's completely normal or even to mm-hmm. carry on a conversation for days and then disappear or even more mm-hmm. bizarrely to, to go on, a date or more and then to disappear. Uh, just okay. strange patterns have emerged. Um, overall, I would say 
that the inevitability of online dating, I mean, you look back and you say, of course, as the internet advances and matures, it's going to connect people and that makes a space for dating. And the taboo has lessened completely, but it has exacerbated hookup culture uh, and has lessened, I think, uh, the the genuine connection. It's, it's, it's changed dating profoundly. And, and, and that's something we could talk about for quite a bit, to be honest. Yes. Well, that's 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 kind of uh, where I wanted to go. A lot of those points is kind of, are kind of where I wanted to go. Um, <clears throat> so one one stupid joke that uh, I'll get out of the way uh, up front is, um, and and you already stole a little bit of my thunder, but uh, like the phrase "ghosts and flakes" um, sounds like a cereal, <laughs> but it actually describes dating. Uh, <laughs> That sounds like an like a BuzzFeed article. Ghost and flakes <laughs> sounds like yeah. a serial, but but it's actually the etiquette of online dating. That's actually modern dating right now. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, so I guess like um, to kind of lend some con- well because uh, spoiler alert, my take on online dating is pretty pretty negative mm-hmm. overall. Um, but I will start with kind of the uh, the trend. That online dating has taken over. Uh, we'll we'll examine the last decade because that's about how long I have been uh, testing the waters of online dating. Anyway, yeah. so I can't speak much to how it was before before then. Um, but at least when when I started becoming interested in online dating, I was looking. The, the apps weren't around. They didn't exist. There weren't enough people. Didn't have smartphones. I had a flip phone. Um, like there was no phone online dating. It was all website based. Um, and I chose, uh, OkCupid as the site that I would use. It's a free site. Um, there are a number of free ones and then there are some paid ones. I've never used the paid ones. Um, and we can talk about maybe the distinction between those, but what drew me to, to OkCupid is kind of what you said. The fact that, um, you can get to know someone before you have to pay the social cost of walking up to them and speaking to them. Um, you can learn, before having to deal with a negative interaction or a positive interaction, you can learn whether or not you would get along with them. I mean, we, we all have deal breakers, and so often you can read someone's profile, learn a little bit about them, or see their pictures, and find out that this person wouldn't be right for me, so there's no point in starting an, an interaction with them. Yeah. That was the big draw of online dating to me was that, well, I don't have to go put myself in these situation, bar situations or what. I don't have to try, even try to talk to someone at a restaurant or a grocery store where they probably are not going to welcome that sort of interaction. I don't have to bother with that. We're in an environment where we all agree that what we're looking for is, is dating. Um, all of these points that you brought up are really good ones and big strengths of online dating. Yeah. OkCupid in particular was attractive to me because they had this site layout where you could, they had hundreds, probably thousands, I think it was thousands of questions, and there were multiple choice questions, and you could answer the question, they were just questions like, um, uh, you, you kind of, they were, some of them were moral questions, some of them were personal questions. Just get to know like, your questions, uh, essentially. Huh? Get to know you questions ranging. Yeah, get from... to know you questions. It was like you know, uh, how how often do you make your bed, or um, like do you uh, 
what's your political orientation? Or uh, do you, I don't know, there are all kinds of things. Do you like vegetables? Or what do you think about your partner cheating? Or whatever. There would be multiple choice questions. They would have you know predefined answers. And they were actually crowdsourced. So the users would submit questions and they would choose from those questions. And they have this huge bank of thousands of questions. Everyone could go answer them and they could choose they choose their answer, they choose how strongly they feel about that answer, whether it's trivial and doesn't mean anything, or whether it's essentially a deal breaker for them. Um, and it's then you can choose what huh? it's a good format. Oh, it's really good. And then you can choose which of the answers you would accept from someone else. So for example, um, <clears throat> if there was a question that says like uh, what do you think about robbing banks? And you know, I would answer robbing banks is not okay. And that would be the only acceptable answer for me if someone else answered, uh, you know, I rob banks occasionally, <laughs> then, you know, that would influence the match rating that they had. So based on all of these questions, they calculate some match rating, and that's how they sort um, the people that you come across. Uh, so you can see, oh, wow, they, we have a 97% match. Um, they, they actually had three categories back in the old days of OkCupid. They had... Um, uh, match percentage, friend percentage, and enemy percentage. Huh. <laughs> so I thought it was really interesting, and of course all their algorithms were, were, were hidden, so you couldn't tell which questions were feeding which number. Um, but, you know, you can kind of make some assumptions. They, they chose the, the, the romantically oriented or, or at least relationship foundational questions and fed those into match. Then they had some other general moral stance ones without the romantic parts that fit into friend. And then your disagreements categorized the, the, the enemy yeah. percentage. So I like that a um, lot. It was really cool, really great, uh, and thousands of questions. And I, I really like answering questions. So even even outside of the, uh, the attempt to form a connection with someone or fa- find a, a, a common answers to questions, I just liked answering the questions. In addition to answering them with the multiple choice answer, you could also write beneath every question and explain your answer. And so I like, uh, you know, I talk probably too much and I explain probably too much. And so for every one of these questions, I was writing an explanation. Lots of times there were jokes in there and it was they were really fun, really fun to do and even fun to, to just go back and read. Now you just and said very- every one of the questions. You said there were possibly thousands. Is that what you're saying you did? You went and answered? Yes. Oh, I, I answered, I think, gosh, uh, I think that I answered the maximum of 3,000 questions um, wow. at one time. That's impressive. And then I, uh, I cleared them all out at one point and went through and answered them all again because it was years later and some of my opinions had changed. Um, Where did your – could you point to – I know this isn't part of the conversation, but uh, an opinion change that was pretty noticeable? Uh, well, no, I can't single out anything in particular, but <clears throat> my explanations were – just you know, I like re- reopened the profile after like five years, and some of my views on things had matured a little bit. So whereas in an old one I just made a stupid joke, in the new one I would explain my answer and then make a stupid joke. Um, <laughs> Always had the stupid so joke. So <laughs> things just got a little bit more well-rounded, and since my profile was very expository, it was a lot of writing. You know, my personality comes through in my writing. And my personality changes ever so slightly over five years. The writing needs to change to reflect that. So, so how did you that, find... That was my, Go ahead. That was my decision in wiping out the, quest, 
the questions is that I've changed enough that what I have here isn't 100% representative of me. I can do a better job. Mm-hmm. Let me just start over, essentially. Did you find that women or, you know, people you were seeking out partners, were they were answering... Women. Well, women. I don't mean to even suggest that like, they're not women. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what. So, so people you're seeking out these women. Did they also answer uh, lots and lots and lots of questions and give the detail that you did? Like, what? How would you say that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, back initially, like back in the in the first maybe couple of years that I started doing this, I I really really enjoyed it because people would, by and large, write a lot about themselves uh, because there you have your front profile page, which the questions. They don't just appear on some gigantic page of 3,000 questions. You just have you know, an about me, and there are a couple of brief prompts, like what I'm looking for and summary, you think basic categories. Mm-hmm. And you just write you know, a paragraph or however much you want about yourself there. You, have, you post some pictures of yourself and some general stats, you know, your age and where you live and what you're looking for, that kind of thing. And I found that... that that, that girls, by and large, would actually write a significant amount about themselves um, back in those days of yore. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, this is what kind of uh, made me form the belief that you really can get at least a general sense of someone's personality through what they write. Uh, you can tell their voice. You can tell a little bit about their sense of humor and what they value based on how they describe themselves and what they're looking for. And I found it really enjoyable to to read people's profiles, and it was amazing to me because, like, I can get a sense of my interest for this person, regardless of their appearance, based on what they write about themselves. And there were people who I was immensely attracted to based on what they wrote, not just their picture. Um, And so I found the, the written sections to be very important. In fact, if they, I kind of had a rule for myself where. If uh, no matter what their pictures were, if they didn't have a filled out profile, then they weren't worth my time. Um, and that didn't bite me too much because most of the people wrote enough about themselves to make it worthwhile. As for the explanations of the questions, um, there were people I found that were kind of like me who just explained everything because they apparently liked to write and make stupid jokes. Um, and then, you know, lots of people would answer questions here and there when they had something to say and. You know, some people, of course, would would explain none, but I found that m- that many people would explain at least some of the questions. So you're essentially making the case that it was just a pretty useful tool, and people engaged oh. in it in the appropriate ways, yes. and yeah, yeah, yeah. all of the above. And and I'll go ahead and lay lay the groundwork for some for some future complaining that I'm going to get to. Um, is that back then, <clears throat> OkCupid was, uh, I believe, an independently run website. They had lots of other features as well. You could, uh, of course, you could message each other, and you could message each other un- unprompted. If you're on someone's profile, you can click message and write them a message. There's no message length, at least not within 10 pages. You could write a really long amount if you wanted to, um, and um, <clears throat> you could block people. So if someone was being annoying, you could just you could block them back then. There was also a feature that I really appreciated that was called notes, and on anyone else's profile you could write notes that would only appear to you. So if you found someone that you liked and you were reading their profile, you could make notes essentially and say, oh, I like that this person does this or this or this. And then if you you know didn't get a chance to investigate their profile completely, you could come back to it later yeah. and your notes would still be there. Really convenient. 
not necessary, but convenient. There was a one to five star rating scale, again, that only appears to you so that you can categorize. Um, Just a lot of organizational techniques that to me seemed like they were trying to build a toolbox to give to people in order to maximize their chances of success. And by success, I mean finding someone compatible and desirable. Yeah. Uh, so I was really pleased with uh, with the experience back then. And then... And then... <laughs> o- over the years, there started to be a change in things. Um, so I will contrast how OkCupid was back then with how it is now. It still exists, and they've tried to put out an app, and I'm sure that... I wouldn't be surprised to find that mo- more of the user base um, uses the app now than the site. But they both go back to the same location, so the information that appears on one appears on the other. Um, but OkCupid now is a completely different place. It's still free, but, well, free monetarily, anyway. Um, <laughs> they have a lot of really shady practices, uh, whereas whereas in the old days... You could see everyone around you, and there were lots of search filters that you could use to narrow down the pack, match with people who who had a high percentage with you or who agreed with you in certain categories. Now it's all monetized, and you 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 can't even message anyone. You can't message anyone unless they all unless you both mutually like each other. They added a like feature in, so unless you mutually like each other, you can't actually communicate. Well, that sounds um, a lot like Tinder. You can like you can like someone and send them a message, but they will never ever see it unless they like you back. Hmm. Um, That's a big change. Oh, it's a huge change. Um, furthermore, they restricted the way that you that profiles are shown to you. So now there are many censored profiles. They they take some sort of behind the scenes aggregate of your attractiveness, and they only show you people who they think are. Uh, in your same level of attractiveness. <laughs> I would love to see that algorithm. I mean, are they actually analyzing your images, or is it just like connections? And they're they're say, based on how I don't know. Attract, I don't know the it's number all, of connections this hidden. person gets it's, and the number that this person gets. We 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 are guessing. Yeah, it's so strange to yeah. me. It's all it's all hidden. Um, they've removed the notes feature. They removed the rating feature. They removed the friend percentage and enemy percentage. What's um, driving all this? Um, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Are they trying to resemble, Um, like, are they finding that people are getting more and more simple? They just want to hop on and swipe because of Tinder. So they're like, okay, let's become more like Tinder. Right. Well, I think that's part of it. And, and actually the company, OkCupid, the independent, uh, or at least what I suppose was independent, they got bought out by, um, by another big company. And now I think that the company that owns OkCupid also owns Tinder. So they're owned by the same mega company at this point so there's going to be sort of that echo chamber of this is how you do a dating website so they're going to end up looking like shadows of each other or mirrors of each other well there's some monetization aspect to it because of course they get ad revenue they get money from selling your your personal data um and then they also get money by trying to get people to sign up for a list which is their premium service so they lock some features behind this paywall and and you and and the features that they added behind this paywall, by the way, used to be free features. So they took things that were free, and now you have to pay for them, and they're worse quality. So in the old OkCupid, anyone who visited your profile, 
you could see you, there was a whole page for visitors. You could look at anyone who viewed your profile and you could see their profile. Yeah. Anyone who liked you, you could see, it would send you an email and tell you this person liked you. You should message them. Um, and then, of course, anyone who messaged you, you would see the message in your inbox and be able to respond. None of that is the case now. You don't know. You don't get to see. You don't even get to see that anyone visited you now, let alone find out who they were. Um, hmm. You can't tell who likes you. So if someone clicks like on you, you don't know who they are. If someone messages you, like I said before, you don't know. You don't see that message until you like them as well. You can't respond until you like them as this well. This is a pay for transparency sort of scheme going on, right? Like, like, like right. pay if you want to see who like. Just pay if you want to see. Just yeah. So well, and 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 further, and uh, another thing that they put behind the paywall was the ability to sort your potential matches by particular categories. So, if you, um, you you can still you still have control over some of the filters, like whether they're married or have kids, um, but other ones uh, are locked behind the paywall. Um, to me, too, so, one of the dangers is they want the obviously they want the paying customers to be happier, so they're probably gonna. They're not going to say this explicitly, but they're going to promote those profiles a lot more than a free profile. I mean, right? That seems the natural uh, extension of things. That does seem that, that might be one of the perks of of paying for this um, this a list service. Because surely you don't. Well. It's it sorts through who you see, right? They don't just show you every single person. Um, oh yeah, it, it determines who you see, and so like uh-huh. it's going to promote you more if you're a paying, cu- or at least it seems fe- very feasible that they're going to promote right. the paying customers more. So, uh, and uh, there's there's one other thing that I'll, I'll only mention briefly, but OkCupid also seems to have been infested with a um, a sense of political ideological motivation, and so they have structured their site along particular political lines. They've lent credence to certain political ideas, and they've downplayed others publicly. And I am not confident that this bias doesn't take place in their website design as well. So how can that Um, actually end up? I have no evidence for that, but that's just a suspicion of mine. Do you mean they've Um, just been uh, politically overt and said, this is how we think and this is how we believe? Or are you saying that the user experience might be different for one political-leaning person? Over they so it, it is a fact that they have been politically overt and they've said this is what we think and this is what we believe which there's nothing there's nothing wrong about that right. i think it's distasteful for a, a company really to, to do particularly that kind of a thing. platform sure um but that that's a fact they have done that they've also uh the questions that i mentioned that i love so much become more and more spun uh in the sense that headlines uh, so often are spun. Uh, they'll they'll have loaded language. How big of an um, idiot do you think Trump is? <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 Exactly. That kind of thing. Um, and uh, and and sometimes they'll try to make a, a farce of neutrality, and they'll the question will simply be something like Trump, and then the the possible answers will be like he's okay, and I hate this douchebag. Like, yeah. uh, you know, they put words in your mouth essentially and rely on the explanation to uh as a user you would have to rely on the explanation box to provide enough clarification but that doesn't change the fact that people are that whatever answer you choose that may not 
completely represent your view as affecting well, your Well, that's a, that's a psychologically manipulative tactic, right? You put the answers, and, and most people are probably, I mean, I, I'm imagining you've seen a, a decline in the amount of people writing on these things. So they they oh, click, yeah. he's a douchebag, and they've internalized he's a douchebag. Like You're giving them the language to then just, you know, just reiterate and, and, and internalize. That's what you're doing. Right. You're manipulating. Here's what you right. should believe. Yes. So there is some of that. I'm So in the objective, unarguable side, it's that they have an overt political bias and they say that openly. In the, this looks shady to me, is the phrasing of their questions and the addition of particular tags and badges you can put on your profile, like support for the ACLU or Planned Parenthood or whatever that you can badge onto your profile. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the I have no evidence but I'm suspicious category is how they are censoring particular profiles and choosing who to show and how you rate attractiveness. I suspect that there's plenty, since all of this is a closed system and the people have clear biases, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that they are letting their biases influence how they treat the users on their site. Yeah. Um, so anyway, all that that's kind of down a rabbit hole and not where I wanted to, to bring the conversation, but that those are my complaints about OkCupid in particular. But I think that the changes to OkCupid, kind of as you tried to ask me, are due to something else. And largely, I think it is competition with, uh, with apps on smartphones, which is something that came along maybe, uh, help me out here, like six or seven years ago, maybe, mm, something like sounds that. Sounds reasonable. Um, and then they, they have since skyrocketed in, in popularity to the point where now I think that the, the website-based dating sites are kind of struggling a little bit because the apps are so much more accessible and convenient. Definitely. But the apps bring with them uh, additional problems. So I guess first I should kind of describe what these apps are like for anyone who doesn't know um, or has been out of the dating scene. So they all have kind of had this merging evolutionary path, and they're all, they all look very similar now. So I, I have used uh, Tinder, Hinge, Bumble, and uh, Coffee Meets Bagel. Those are the four that I have had uh, some experience with. Tinder, I think, is the most popular one, maybe. I would um, imagine people, if, if a person uses one, they probably use multiple. It's very, very common, yeah. right? Well, it's so easy. They're all free, um, the free to use, uh, and you can pay for Well, they tap okay into your Cupid Facebook style if you want to just basically perks. pull those pictures. and just They make it as easy to launch yeah. onto the platform as possible without having to spend a lot of time creating. Right. So some there's there's some ulterior motive to that, which is that they get all of your Facebook data by doing this, and they can now use and sell your da- your data. So there is an ulterior motive component to that, but there's also a convenience factor, like you say, where you can just straight import your photos and your your likes and things and your age and name, things like that. There's a verification aspect to it um, as well, so you can't just create a catfish profile. Um, so. So the way these apps work, um, by and large, is that you first choose a subset, a set of pictures of yourself, usually you know between six and nine, three and nine pictures, something like that. Um, and those, when you when you open the dating app and your profile shows up on someone else's phone, what they see is a your profile picture, the big picture of you, and they see your name and they see your age. That's what they see, and then. 
if they feel so inclined to learn more about you, they can click a button and uh, the picture will move. I'm describing Tinder in particular. The picture will kind of slide up to the top of the screen and there's a little a little text area beneath that where it can show your profession um, and maybe where you went to school and you can write a little a, a little bio about yourself. When you say a little bio, but, what do you mean? Well, this is no 2010 era OkCupid bio where you can write pages of information. It's limited. It has a character limit, I think, of 500 characters. Yeah, quite um, short. So, yeah, it is basically a tweet uh, about yourself. Um, and then uh, now I think they have some social media like Instagram links. You can link in your Instagram and stuff like that too if you if you use that. And that is the totality of you that you present hmm. on these apps. So it's very um, image heavy. Very image heavy. Uh, and of course, they make it really easy to quickly sort through profiles. So with just a swipe left or right, um, kind of uh, the 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 rule that has been developed by these apps is a left swipe means no, I'm not interested, and a right swipe means yes, I am interested. And so how this kind of plays out, you, you can't just message someone. If you see their profile and you like them, you, you can't just message them um, on Tinder. You have to match with them, meaning both people have to swipe right on each other. Now this, I think, is a good system for this kind of app because it guarantees that there's some level of mutual interest uh, before you start talking. So from a particular perspective, I don't have a problem with, with this. Yeah. Uh, there are some issues, um, but... But it makes sense from a, a particular perspective. Um, so that's basically how the app works. Uh, and then once you both match, you either person can initiate conversation, and it's just text. It's a text conversation essentially, just text back and forth. And of course, you can share a number or meet up in person after that. And that's just how it goes. Um, so there are some differences between the apps. So that that was kind of Tinder. Bumble is almost identical, except. Um, there are a few, they've just kind of in the last year added some prompt questions that you can add onto your profile there. It's a set of basic questions, kind of like OkCupid, except they're, they're a little more broad, like, um, uh, what is the coolest place I've traveled to? Or, um, what is my main pet peeve or something like that? And you can choose these questions and then answer them only three of them. Uh, and then you still have a little space to write about yourself. Otherwise it's identical to Tinder. Um, and then in the way it works on the back end, there's another distinction, which is um, if you match with someone, the male can't message first. Only the female can message first. And what's the thought so, behind that? What's the thought behind yeah. it? Um, I believe it was probably to try to counteract the the uh, the action that you noted that that men, for whatever reason, seem to be overwhelmingly represented in online dating. And so there are way more men than women on online dating, and men tend to be more likely to just always send out messages, to just send out messages and swipe right and always make the initiative all the time. And the result was that women are overwhelmed very often on these apps. They get a deluge of messages and likes and it can be overwhelming, especially with the messages. So this isn't um, like a perception thing. This isn't my take on it or your take on it. This is a legitimate problem that plagues online dating that men inundate the the server or the the, the platform and and, yes. and well, aggressively actually, pursue or I, whatever. Yeah, in the early days of OkCupid, before they got so authoritarian in their site management, they actually published really interesting. 
statistics, and the statistics showed that men would be the initiators of messaging far more often. And I've heard anecdotal stories from girls that I've talked to that it's not uncommon for them to receive you know, a dozen or more messages in, every day and that oftentimes their inbox would just be full and they just couldn't respond to all the messages they were getting. Now, this is anecdotal, of course, and I don't know how much of it, that is posturing, but well, it just doesn't seem... It doesn't seem that far-fetched to me that that could be the case. And and without being crude, it would would that almost be independent of their attractiveness? I mean, you're, are you saying that um, obviously you, you take a gorgeous person, man or woman, they're probably going to have more success on online dating or any dating for that matter. But um, if you have so many men pursuing women, that would affect sort of like, okay, so the supermodel is getting, you know, however x amount of messages but so so is the you know average looking girl you know like our average looking person right. like they're gonna they're gonna get tons of messages too right um yes i i think that is how how it was um i don't think that it was as skewed as you might suspect like you might suspect that it's a zero-sum game and that if there are 100 men and 100 women the 100 men are all going to message the supermodel and none are going to message you know, the the middle attractiveness women, but I don't think that's the case. I think kind of what was observed is that the 100 men message like 75 of the women, you know, like they... Right, there's no, there's no, there's no cost to just copy pasting a little, hey, you're cute, or hey, what's up, or whatever. You can just do that, do that, do that. And if you're playing a numbers game, which let's be honest, a lot of people are going to do. Yes. Well, then how do you how do you know the sincerity of the interest being expressed? That creates a nightmare, really. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, sure. And I, I sympathize with the girls on these websites um, having to deal with all of that, although I tend to think their problem is a little bit better one to have than, than, than the guy's problem. So what is the but, guy's you know, problem exactly? Hmm? What is the guy's problem exactly? Uh, the guy's problem is breaking through, like, if... If a thousand guys are constantly sending messages, then you you have the problem of having your genuine, sincere message noticed at all. Even if your compatibility is super high and you write a really funny, excellent message tailored to their profile and your common interests, there is a very good chance that it will never get seen just because she has a thousand messages to look through and probably won't get around to it. And, and, you know, these people have lives outside of online dating as well. So it's not like people spend all their time on the site. Um, so it's, so that's, a, that's a big challenge. So you've laid the groundwork for this sort of dating uh, culture. And um, what – okay, so now that you've laid the groundwork, what, what are the – some significant problems have, have presented themselves. Are, is there a pathway toward uh, solving this problem? Or what do, you, what do you think the next step is? What's the evolutionary process of this? Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, well, you, you said you had some data. I didn't know if the data was going to point towards solutions or just your experiences or I'm very curious just my, about well, this. My experiences. So, so this, this fits good right here. So we've been kind of talking about how the, the apps have changed to sort of encourage a, a shallow level of interaction, a shallow level of judgment, little exposition now, a little self-description, um, it's mostly image-based uh, and and not text-based. Not very much of your personality can bleed through in your profile. Uh, of course, you can try to put clever pictures, but 
people are very with one quick motion of their thumb, your profile is is gone now. They don't even have to read and digest, uh, you know, a paragraph about you first. Right. Um, and so, I my hypothesis is that this this trend of online dating that started in a very promising way has now moved to an area that is actually outlook is not good for people and in fact i think that dating now is potentially worse than it has been certainly in modern american history and maybe in in all of history um that's extreme but definitely in modern american history it's very bad um and i think that uh it encourages a lot of um, essentially attention whoring, uh, and how do you get the most number of swipes? How do you attract? how do you get the highest number of swipes? How do you get the most attention in the shortest amount of time and with the least amount of effort? Yeah, how um, do you do so without on, producing thoughtful content or meaningful content? It's more of how, yeah, how can I get the right, right angle on of the, this picture? On the female side, I think that this um, this comes out in uh, well. I'll just bluntly state my opinion up front, and then I'll try to reason <laughs> you to it in slutty behavior. Um, oh, so man. we all kind of uh, acknowledge the truism that sex sells. Uh, it simply does. We have biological drives, and when we see something attractive, well, we're attracted to it, and we want to engage with that. And girls, especially young girls who haven't developed a sense of maturity or self-respect, they take advantage of this. Uh, and so you find so often, especially on Tinder, for whatever reason, that it is just inundated with pictures that would probably be flagged as inappropriate on Facebook. Um, like, these are borderline softcore pornographic images a lot of times. Wow. Like, bathing suits, kind of like... Well, so many bikini pictures, obviously, and then even ones where like the bikinis are kind of undone a little bit, like just very. You say very scandalous it's, pictures. It's the culture. This is the culture. Like this is just what you see is frequent bikini pictures. But I mean, is it that intimate to some degree? I mean, or, or maybe I'm wrong. I mean, you wear a bikini to the beach. Uh, so is it? Is it? Are we? Are you? being old fuddy-duddies to say, oh, well, that's quite revealing. Are you sure you want to just present yourself as, like, an object? And, you know, when you when you, when you you lead forward <laughs> with your breasts or your legs or your ass or whatever, I mean, you that's uh-huh. that's making quite a – I mean, you are objectifying and saying, look, here's, here's what I have to offer, right? Y- yes. Um, so I don't know if you're expecting me to argue against that position or not, but that basically is the position I hold. Um, I mean, the the beachwear that we see, particularly on Tinder, would like with a change of fabric wouldn't be surprising in the bedroom of a married couple. You know, like I mean, in fact, I imagine there's lots of nightwear lingerie that actually covers more skin than than common beachwear. So now. what's the so, what's the counter to this argument? Is it simply um, uh, other uh, other than saying it's not a big deal and it's part of the culture? I mean, is that the only argument that uh, because you can't? I don't think you can make a legitimate argument that it's not ultra revealing. I mean, it simply is. Well, yeah, by definition, it's. It's it's revealing. I think the argument would be, so what? It's my body. I can choose what I do with it and how to present it. I'm a strong, empowered 
person. I can choose to show my body off however I want, and there's no reason to be ashamed of what I look like. And that's uh, that's fair. Uh, they, they that's can... that's a that's a fair argument, but you will be judged based on your body at that point. Who you show your body to, uh, and how like how you actually conduct yourself in the world, and you are you are showing yourself off to strangers who you will never meet. And how do you present yourself? Do you present yourself like you respect your appearance and your body and the the intimacy that you could potentially build with someone or not? And so in my view, this sort of and this goes for, you know, I since I only view the girls' profiles, my criticisms are all aimed at girls. Sorry girls. <laughs> um, if I saw guys' profiles, I'm sure that I would be just as disgusted by most of them. From what I hear, there are lots of bathroom mirror ab selfies um, for That's guys. That's all my that profile are... used to be, just bathroom right. selfies. Toilet, get the toilet <laughs> yeah. in the background. Here's, here's, here's my abs at, at this angle and then at this angle, and here's in my bathroom mirror, and here's in the reflection of my I would sink, just take pictures of my individual ab. Like, here's, here's ab one. I'd have six Here's one there. ab, here's ab two. <laughs> I hit the picture limit. Yeah, I really didn't um, have a six pack. I only had one ab, so I would just put the picture six different angles and act like I had a six pack. Right, that was my goal. <laughs> um, no, okay. So, so, so I'm a big believer that we we train we we teach others how to treat us, right? Like, so you you what, uh, yeah. based on what you accept and what you and how you lead and what how you present yourself and 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 where you say no 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 I'm not going to accept that sort of treatment. Um, and how you object to so so if you are saying if you take that position of well it's my body I can do what I want to I'm proud of it I want to show it what you're doing um, is saying this is how I want to be measured uh, this mm-hmm. is how you are you are opening the the domain is now yes this is about my body so let's let that be central to the discussion. And regardless of how good or not good or whatever your body is, um, I'm a little uncomfortable with that being the central focus of presenting your identity. Is that? Oh, do you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, that's. I agree with that 100. Um, percent Yeah, com- totally. Uh, and and you know, like to just you know to be clear that this wasn't the case all the time, but it's super common. In fact, if you'll allow me to, we'll, I'll get to the data that I have. Yeah, data. Uh, I want to hear that it. I've compiled. So, um, uh, over the span uh, spanning October, November, and December of last year, so just a few months ago, in 2018. Three months of data um, mining. I, three months. I conducted a study of my own. I used Bumble, Tinder, and Hinge. And uh, I swiped a number of times for each of these apps, and I kept some data uh, of what I saw on people's profiles. So I'll tell you the the categories of things. So first, I talked about Bumble and Tinder. I'll talk about Hinge briefly as well because the the data is interesting. Um, Hinge is different from Bumble and Tinder, and in my opinion, it is the best uh, online dating venue at the moment because... It doesn't, there's no left and right swiping. <clears throat> you can still essentially say, no, I'm not interested by clicking an X. But um, when you when you pull up someone's profile, you see their name and you see um, 
the first picture that they present for themselves. But rather than being a click to scroll through their images first and then maybe see a little bio about them, you scroll uh, you scroll the page, and you know as you scroll down the page, there are required prompts, not required, but almost 100% buy-in for these prompts. Uh, just like on Bumble, they say things like, oh, this is my pet peeve, or this is the place I want to travel to most, or um, this is what makes a relationship tick, things like that. And you have three prompts, um, and then there's also a section where you can write a little bit about yourself and multiple pictures. Do you have to scroll um, through past this in order to accept or like or connect or whatever? No, you can click on any of these items. If you click on a picture, there's a little heart icon or whatever that shows up. You click on the heart and it allows you... It, you don't just swipe or say, I'm interested. It brings up a message box and you can send a brief message to the person. Um, okay. So you're, ac- you're actually communicating with the person first. It's not just a like. You don't, they don't have to like you in order for you to send this to them. Um, so you can you can genuinely express interest without there being some sort of connection already. Now, it's a short little blurb. You can't say a whole lot. Uh, it's a very short character limit, but you can say something, and it is your words. Um, you can say it on the pictures or on the words that they write. Um, so it's not old days, okay, Cupid level of goodness, but it's better than any of the competition. It encourages some information that's beyond you know it de-emphasizes the almighty picture to a degree yes to a degree you still comment on a picture oftentimes but actually i find that in my use of it i end up commenting on what they write more than on on their picture depending on the picture um and uh because you know it kind of it starts off a back and forth they write something you write something back it kicks off a conversation very naturally. I'm sure there are lots of guys that just click on the first picture and say, "Hey babe, you're looking cute" or something like that. <laughs> yeah. uh, and that would be the that would be the lame Tinder way to use this app, and I'm sure plenty of plenty of guys use it that way. But it provides the option for a little bit more sophisticated use of the app. So anyway, that's that's Hinge. So, the data that I collected, <clears throat> I I flipped through for for Bumble, Tinder, and Hinge. I looked at 500 profiles each. Nice. So a pretty high number of profiles in three months. Yeah, 1,500. Um, and I kept, track, right. I kept track of visible tattoos. So uh, obviously since this is for my dating interest, these categories are going to be kind of tilted towards what, what I am interested in seeing or not. I'm not making any sort of grand judgment about these things. We can talk about why I choose these things if you want to, but these are the categories that I chose to examine. Okay. First off, because they're visible on Tinder, you don't get to see any writing about them. So all of these are pretty much visible categorizations. Yeah. So I classified visible tattoos, okay. nose rings, okay. slutty outfits. Obviously, this is my subjective definition of a slutty outfit. Yeah. I'd have to. I want to ask em- you a few more questions about that particular category. Keep going. Em- empty bios, so they didn't write anything about yeah. themselves. Snapchat filters <laughs> and overweight. <laughs> these are these are the categories that I kept. So all of these I kept are six- like undesirable categories, is what you're saying. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> well, and, and well, and okay. So, Just to like, be clear. <laughs> additionally, 
What? Just to be clear, you didn't love overweight, you know, tatted, nose ring or piercing, uh, non oh, non bio right. riding people. You know, like, like the ultimate woman for you. <laughs> yeah. Gosh. Well, actually, there were some profiles that I came across that had all of them, all oh, of them, man. and I would like in in carrying out this experiment when I would come across a profile, I would kind of have this sort of like perverse rooting for the person like once i once their first picture you know they have like tattoos and nose rings i'm like all right come on (laughs) give me that slutty outfit (laughs) empty bio and you know sometimes i would get you know the dog ear snapchat filter and everything all in one person and it was just unbelievable um really quickly slutty outfit if if one picture of their how many would are on like five or six only one if if you have one slutty picture that gets counted in the data okay um and I also tabulated um, how many right swipes, how many times I swiped right on them. So how many of all of these profiles, how many people did I deem acceptable? Um, and how and my match percentage, how many of these right swipes did they also swipe right on me? Okay. Um, and I also tried to keep track of the if we had a conversation afterwards, uh, why did it end? So I had a this lot of data, data that I collected, and, and I want to hear I'll, I'll kind of go I'm through excited. it a little bit, and we'll see how much of this surprises yes. you. So um, I compared Bumble, Tinder, and Hinge in all of these different categories. So I guess just to start it off, like, which app do you think had the highest number of tattoo tattooed That's girls? Easy Tinder. Yes, you're, you're correct. <laughs> um, so 17% of the profiles that I looked at. Uh, on Tinder, the people had visible tattoos. Okay. Um, that's compared to 12% on Bumble and 9.4% on Hinge. Interesting. So, so Tinder had almost double the number of tattooed people that, that Hinge wow. did. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Uh, all right, so what about for nose rings? Which of the three <laughs> apps do you think uh, the girls had more I'm going to say rings? it's going to follow this order, I'm going to guess. every So Tinder followed by Bumble followed by Hinge. <laughs> That is oh, correct. Wow. <laughs> uh, you're right, sir. Uh, Tinder, uh, 15.4% of girls had a nose ring. Think about that for a second. Say that again. That's a, hu- a huge 15. percentage of people have nose rings on Tinder. 15.4%. That is a huge percentage. I mean, it's it's currently fashionable, I suppose. Um, 15.4% of people stabbed a hole in their <laughs> flesh and stuck a thing through it and think it looks good. In their nose. Think yeah. about that. That's insane. <laughs> I mean, it's a current trend that I think the numbers would be different in a few years when it's out of vogue. My God, you know? I hope so. I really do. I think it's in vogue, and I think it's it's simple. But the fact that it actually, I mean, as you can, we'll see where this goes, of course. But if you, if, there's a lot of assumptions here. If you're measuring trashiness, <laughs> it's a little uncomfortable just to make that judgment. But you're, so, I am. So, and, and. And, and and each category bared itself out in the percentages. You know what? Let's just keep going through the data. No, that's what I'm. That's essentially the case I'm making is a data backed <laughs> claim. A data backed claim that Tinder is trashier than Bumble and yes. Hinge by my standards of trashiness. Yes. I would also be interested in seeing this done for the guy profiles as well, because having never seen a guy's profile except for the occasional idiot who accidentally classifies himself as a female. <laughs> um, I don't know what guy profiles look like other than my own. So I would be really interested to see, and I would, I would join in the girls in laughing at the number, the high percentage of ab 
selfies and right. and motorcycle pictures <laughs> or whatever else. Or actually else. feel like it's probably overt manipulation with dogs and stuff that, like, we, you know. Oh, we'll get yeah. to it. Okay. So, um, so... So, yeah, 15.4% of people on Tinder had a nose ring compared to 12% on Bumble and 116 on Hinge. So pretty high Across the overall, board. Yeah. honestly. Yeah. Um, the slutty outfit ratio, which one do you think won I'm that one? I'm staying with Tinder. I'm staying with this order, probably. Keep going. Yeah, yeah, you're you're right. Actually, almost double at 21.2% of people over one in five profiles on Tinder had a slutty outfit compared to 12.6 on Bumble and only 11.2 on Hinge. This is interesting to me because I didn't know if your standards for what a like if you were going to be more ready more more readily assigned that that's a trashy outfit but your statistics are are not out of bounds or, or they're sort of in line with the tattoos and the nose piercings. Yes. So. I I try to be consistent and I don't classify a bathing suit necessarily as slutty. But it, there are so many pictures on tin, on, on uh, Tinder where a girl will be in a bikini with it hiked like way up and then sitting in a provocative pose or showing side boob or whatever, like with her arm, like essentially, like I say, a, a softcore pornographic right. picture. Like it's obvious when you're using the, the bathing suit as um, a, a, an advertisement for yourself, a, a, a bargaining chip for your worth and when you just happen to get a picture taken of you on the beach. And I tried to allow for these distinctions. Right. Well, good. Similarly, just wearing a low-cut dress isn't isn't automatically a slutty outfit, but wearing a low-cut dress and leaning over provocatively or raising the side of the dress it makes it a slutty outfit. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense to me. So so that that was the criteria I tried to use. Like I I, I tried not to be too harsh with it. Um and and like I say, the, the the gap in percentages tended to show that there was a discrepancy, even by my own criteria, which some people probably don't agree with, but whatever. Yeah. Um, so for the in- empty bio, that was next. This one I think had the largest discrepancy. Which one? Which app do you think had the most empty um, bios? Well, yeah, Tinder again. I'm gonna hope that Hinge had quite a few, like almost all. I don't even know if. I was on Hinge at one point. I think you could you had to answer a few questions before creating it. So continue with the data. <clears throat> so 32.6% of people on Tinder didn't God. write anything at all for wow. their bio. So almost one-third of people just didn't bother. They're perfectly okay with only selling themselves in an image. Third, like, almost. yeah. That's absurd yeah. to me. Like. You have all, really. We had a whole topic, a whole discussion on the English language and how we can represent ideas with words, and these people have chosen to completely sidestep that and only represent themselves with Well, right, because they have and, different goals. If this is just to share your body, if this is a hookup, then you don't need to exchange ideas. So why? I mean... You're right. That That's a good point. Uh, and I suspect that we might not even be able to attribute hookup motives to a lot of these people. It's simply attention motives. Like they don't, they may not have any intention to hook up with people. They just want to see how yeah, many, that's the dangerously like, blurred lines. I mean, that's the thing about if you present yourself as sexualized, you and you want you want you oversexualize yourself, and you want to be you want to gain some of these benefits that come with that, and yet mm-hmm. you don't want to maybe you don't want some of the other things that come with that I mean, it's, just, it's complicated <laughs> right. it's gray area stuff that bears itself out in reality all the time one other small point in this category is that i only counted 
profiles that had nothing about themselves, so empty bios. So many bios on Tinder, uh, on all the apps actually, only have an Instagram tag or a kick tag or something like that. That's all it says. It doesn't actually say anything about them or what they're looking for, or what they're interested in. It just says their their um, their username. Mm. I didn't count that in the you statistics. I counted mm. that as putting something in their bio. So I think if, it's if I had made the category uh, worthless bios, the percentages would have wow. been higher. Um, by the way, the hinge percentage that you were curious about is uh, only four point six percent. So the lowest percentage of any of my recorded values. Uh, Almost all people on Hinge wrote something about. I think that's almost the expectation which, of that app. Is it's the? I mean, it's known as the less trashy app. I mean, that, right? I mean, mm-hmm. in terms of yeah, that's just what people think of. And and that that's been my experience on the app, and that's what the data seems to suggest that I collected is that that Hinge is just better. Um, if what you're looking for is information about someone that you might be compatible right. with, that's the pro- so Snapchat filters. Uh, I won't even ask. You're already right. Um, Tinder has the highest percentage at 18.8% of people had Snapchat filters. 18.8% of people, almost one out of five people had a Snapchat filter in their profile on Tinder. And then actually Hinge was second in line here at 12%, followed by Bumble in last at 9.6%. I mean, this is gray area on whether that – the others, uh, there's just some obvious connection with potential trashy behavior, whereas this is – I I don't know. It's just an an annoyance to me. Um, although, although there is the point to be made that Snapchat filters hide your face partially and they, they artificially enhance the attractiveness of certain features. So there are filters that add and they, they kind of, um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of brush out, uh, blemishes and enhance colored right. cheeks and make the eyes bigger and sparklier. It's actually the point um, of and, all of it is to, you know artificially enhance i mean that's what the filters are for and so it's to hide and hiding pieces of your face that's just part of it so they can act like oh doggies are cute but really they like that it takes away the nose or whatever and it can Mm -hmm. and once it becomes accepted well then well then yeah so this is this is a uh controversial and potentially offensive observation that i made um but my observation was that the people, you know, of the Snapchat filters, there's like a dog, you know, and that one has ears and a tongue. Um, yeah. And there's a pig that has, I think, <clears throat> a nose and, and maybe ears. And um, there there are also these strange ones that are like face masks. I've seen that. I don't know I, if you've seen I've these. I think I've seen those anyway. And then there's the ones that are just like eyes widening and cheek blushing. Um, and I, I noticed that the the percentage of face covered up was directly proportional to the unattractiveness of the girl. So the less attractive the girl, the more face covering Snapchat filters she would choose. Um, I, I just am not surprised by that. <laughs> I mean, it makes, well, it, it also, makes sense. It also speaks to people's ability to self-assess and understand that, hey, they're That's not true, that... Yeah. On some level, yeah. anyway. Yeah, they might not know they're yeah. doing that. I, I would guess that they do, but they don't need to explicitly acknowledge that that's what they're doing. They're just saying, oh, I'm just using this filter. I mean, that's that's what these filters have allowed for, is here's how to present yourself as you cover up what your insecurities without acknowledging your insecurities. Like, what a, what yeah. a powerful tool to provide 
someone. And what a what a horrible tool because you're going to evaluate I mean, what what do I need to cover up? You have you have little girls growing up and as digital natives, you know, like in this world, and they're not just girls. I'm sure guys too, but let's be honest. Like this is affecting girls a lot stronger. Yeah. Um, that that are thinking how how do I look? Where are my blemishes, and how do I cover them up? Please provide me these tools. And the market has responded. Here are the tools. Look at how messed the up market, you are. The market has responded and seemingly encouraged a focus on all of this, essentially falsehood. Like rather than someone who has some unattractive physical features being able to place their emphasis on their ability to describe themselves or have an enjoyable personality or a good sense of humor. Now, like the focus has actually pushed to eliminating those distinguishing traits and focusing instead on the visual arena where they have to resort to these sort of filters to attempt to even compete. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I don't think it's healthy. No. I mean, we're, we're speaking that, of unhealthy, okay. the last category <laughs> yeah. is overweight, and this is perhaps the most depressing category. Oh, so man. Can, can I ask a few which, pressing questions w- on how you decided? <laughs> is that, how do you even answer so, this? I don't know. By the way, my data, um, so I, I might I, run out of, unfortunately, like it just said it's getting full. I don't know how long I have before it gets full, my, my recording. Oh, no. Know. Wow. Um, all right. So uh, I... Um, I tried to give a little bit of a, a fudge factor. Um, so if if you were chubby, if you were chubby, I didn't count that. Even though scientifically that's probably overweight. Yeah. Um, I, I I considered uh, pro- probably what would be scientifically obese as my my delineator, but probably safer to err on the side of undateably overweight from my subjective okay. point okay. of view. Um, so which which app do you think of the three had the most overweight? Uh, Tinder. Wrong. Tinder was actually the lowest percentage of overweight people really? at twenty two percent. I was going to really okay okay. Well, I would have my second. Well, I was going to guess Bumble possibly. I actually thought about that. It wasn't a sarcastic thinking. I was going. Well, could this have changed it up? You know, given anyway. So it was it was the lowest or second lowest you said. It was the lowest at 22%. So over one in five people were overweight. Um, But it was the lowest. So that's, I thought that was interesting. Uh, The second lowest was Bumble, but all the way up at 30%. And the highest overweight percentage was Hinge at 39.3%. I mean, edging in on half of the people on Hinge are are undateably overweight by my standards. mm, Interesting. Is there's, wow. Yeah, wow. it's uncomfortable to even sift through well, that data, but it's like okay, well, since I'm oh, if you want to take this and, and say, well, where where are they going to de-emphasize looks the most? And and if that's yeah, if that that's would be, hinge, that would be hinge, then then your best shot is is in, at hinge or with hinge, right? Right, and and I think that's a valid and worthwhile strategy to have. Like, I mean, if you recognize that online dating has become a visual-only world, then you would choose the means that provided you all the tools to show how you're attractive in other ways. And so that makes sense. Whereas Tinder has gravitated towards being the trashy uh, images-only app. And so people who are overweight recognize that, wow, this is pointless. 
Um, and so they go elsewhere. That seems to make sense. But to me, it's just stunning that the percentages are so high. And obviously, this is in the American Southeast, so this could vary by location. But 22% at the lowest is just just depressing. I want to know what percentage of Americans are overweight by saying what person. I'm looking this up. Yeah, look it up. I think it's uh, I think it's higher than any of these percentages, um, which makes sense because you get more overweight as you age. An estimated generally. 160 million Americans are either obese or overweight. Nearly three quarters of American men are more than six, and more than 60 percent of women right. are obese or overweight. These are also major challenges for Americans' children. Nearly 30 percent of boys and girls under age 20 are either yep. obese or overweight. Up from well, up from 19 percent in, in 1980. So jump from 19% to 30% from 1980 to now. There we go. That falls in line with my data. 30 is just about uh, the median um, percentage that I found. Uh, yeah. So that fits. Okay. Uh, yeah. So those are the categories of data. Just honestly, when you combine the percentages in all of those, it's pretty depressing, the number of acceptable profiles, at least by my standards. So I'll just go ahead and tell you the my right swipe percentage Um Oh, all right, so which app do you think it was the highest on, lowest you know, on? Hinge, hinge to, to Tinder as far as um, highest. To the... So you're wrong. Uh, I... The number of right swipes on Hinge was uh, was my second place. So I swiped Bumble. right on Bumble more than Hinge or Tinder. Actually, at 21.5%, I swiped right. So okay. um, not too bad. Tinder, though, was abysmal at 8%. Uh, so less than one out of 10 profiles that I actually swipe right on only 16, um, out of this entire study. Mm. Uh, and it doesn't, the percent doesn't actually match because I started tabulating this, uh, at 300, um, not at 500. So, oh, wow. Uh, <clears throat> a little difference. Uh, and then uh, for hinge, it was, a f- a just under 15% right swipe percentage. So you can kind of see that based on the number of unacceptable profiles and my relatively low right swipe percentage that online dating apps have not been all that successful of an endeavor. Or, or rather, it is a numbers game that takes a long time to find success at. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then, so that's, that, that's my engagement with it. Then if we take it one step further to matches, and of course, other people's data, if other people were to mimic this, then you know, their data would be completely different. People would find them less attractive than people found me. But um, uh, so I, I, in this three-month period, I had three matches on Bumble, three matches on Tinder, and seven matches on Hinge. Um, so this is only a 0.6% match percentage uh, for each one, Hinge at 1.4%. So that gives you a sense of what the numbers game is like and how much success you can expect if you are like me in this area anyway. Um, that's a tough that's a tough world out there. Whew. And then so uh just to round out the data so I can get off of this page, um the the conversations that I had out of those matches, um uh I ha- the reason so I didn't have any I didn't start going out with any of the people in this three None of this period. led to a date. Um in fact, I think only one date resulted from any of this, oh. and that didn't happen until after the period during which I recorded this data. Um, so uh, I had, uh, of the, let's see, I had 13, um, 13 matches total. 
Seven of these uh, ended because of ghosting of them just after starting the conversation, never just not continuing it. Wow. Over um, half. Over half. Uh, two unmatched me after, st- after starting the conversation. One never started, so they matched but never never started the conversation. This was on Bumble. Um, and then one conversation of all of these reached closure where we, through discussion, said, um, I'm not really that interested. Good luck. Yeah. And then, and that, that's only 12, so the other one, I guess, is the, the date, the date um, which also ended in ghosting, by the way. So. Man. That, that, that data is depressing. So, so just to really, not to put too fine a point on it, but I investigated 1,500 people, and only one person of all 1,500 people that I examined for potentially dating did I have a conversation with and determine that we weren't good for each other and we wished each other good luck and continued onward? When really, I mean, okay, so so the, the optimistic side of this is you only need one person, right? You don't need, it only needs to work out with one person. So that's like the eternal optimist in me. Um, but sure. But really, you would think 1,500 people, there should be dozens that you are reaching closure with that it's not work, you know, that, it, that it, you're incompatible mm-hmm. to some degree or another. Um, and it just seems reasonable that dozens of that those would happen, uh, and and it, you did have a dozen matches that then should result in essentially and essentially a dozen closures. Like there's a problem yes. with ghosting. Like it, ghosting should be complete a complete anomaly. Like like yes, it should be because someone got in a car accident or because you know they dropped their phone in the toilet or something right. like that. Like it, it shouldn't be commonplace this shouldn't be a method of rejection right right and so i mean you almost have to warp your data to suggest that that yeah ghosting is a terrible but but it's a form of closure uh unfortunately you have to accept that it's closure and that oh yeah they're not all dying in car wrecks and you know dropping it it is so you're right i mean it is closure i define closure as mutually determined closure and saying goodbye essentially um ghosting is closure because i don't even remember who these people were now that that ghosted me i'm just you know they're they're gone but but what this has resulted in is my investment in online dating is extraordinarily low like i mean i can't I actually can't get my expectations up for a person that I'm talking to until after I've already met them once or twice. Only then can I start really being interested because before that point, as experience has shown me, things can end or stop at any time for any reason that doesn't even involve me. How unique do you think, or how representative of your experience do you think, I didn't phrase that right, how representative is your experience? Um, uh, that's hard to say. Uh, I don't really talk to a lot of people about this, so I don't have a lot of data for other people. Um, I expect that it depends on people's motivations. So my, my data would be more similar to someone who, like my goals are a relationship. I'm not looking to hook up. In fact, I explicitly, uh, swipe left or decline anyone who says that they are open to a lookup, a hookup. Um, (laughs) I look up people who aren't into hookups. Um, <laughs> so if people's goals aren't the same as mine, their experience is going to be different. Um, and my standards are obviously, you know, some people are perfectly fine with tattoos and nose rings uh, and stuff, and, and I find that those things unattractive. Um, 
So that kind of stuff would differ a little bit. But by and large, like, I think that maybe within a, a, a margin of error of 15% or so, people's ex- guys' experiences would be pretty similar I, to I mine. I think the trouble is people want to have their cake and eat it too in terms of wanting, um, like, they can't just come out and say, all right, let's make the real dating app for those who are serious, and then let's make the the hookup app for those who are not serious. But people don't want to say, they don't want to just say explicitly, I'm trashy and I want to hook up, or or, or just I want to hook up. They don't want to say that. They want to be wooed into thinking, oh, I, I don't, there's a game to play. I don't usually do this. This is, this is a unique experience for me. The song and dance yeah. of wooing and seduction that can't you know is diminished so entirely if if you just say want to hook up like yeah me too (laughs) um you you cannot do that so there has to be a facade there and that that creates that that disharmony uh creates an impossible difficulty like how are you supposed to navigate genuine interest in this case and how are you you have to be thrown into a pool of people that will only want hookups but will not say they only want hookups i imagine that's actually like more guys are that way than girls probably and so girls that's that's difficult they're having to to say they're having to test the guys uh sincerity in some ways or at least figure that out and and the same is true for for guys not looking for hookups but just seems Mm -hmm. probably overrepresented the other way um God, I that's actually one of the notes that I made is that there are few hookup based, overtly hookup based. Oh, profiles. very few. I mean, and you probably saw some bots. That you, did you just discount bots, or what did you, or or, or have they done a good job uh, of they, getting? They've control? actually gotten pretty good at eliminating that. Um, so, uh, yeah, anything, any any fake profiles, I, I disregarded, but I didn't encounter many, if any, at all in this period. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, that's good. It's just that no one's going to say want to hook up or, you know, but there's yeah. that, that's where language like Netflix and chill. I mean, now it's it's mocked or it's so almost explicit at this point because everyone understands what it means. But it came from a place of having that veil, like needing that veil of no, like, let's just hang out. Let's just watch some Netflix instead of saying, come over to my place and let's do it. Like, you don't want to be that explicit. <laughs> so. Right. Um, it would be way better if we were a little more explicit with our motives, but but then you feel well, trashy signing up for it, and you don't like that, and so you avoid that. Yeah. So you go to the legitimate. Well, there, there's been an attempt at that, right? So one of the other interesting things that I did was I went through the app store, and I looked for specialized dating apps because I think it's really interesting we have these blanket apps like Tinder and Bumble and all of that that – that are meant to be for general dating, but tend to take on their own identities. Tender for hookups, hinge for relationships. Um, but there, are, there is a market for specialized dating apps, as people often laugh at when they saw commercials for Christian Mingle and FarmersOnly.com. Right, right. You know, but there are apps that kind of cover these bases too. So just on a quick search through the app store, I found uh, an app called Patrio, which is for conservative dating. I found. <laughs> Kinku, which is for fetish dating. <laughs> Cougar, which is for older, uh, older women. <laughs> Younger men. Woo Plus, which is for curvy singles. Oh, hmm. I wonder what that, what does that uh, mean? So, I don't understand. I don't I have know. Curves. I what, like could it, what could curvy mean? <laughs> um, Asian teen dating. No. no. Um, 
Yeah, Asian teen dating. Just for that's Asian a, teens, or for film. like the white guy who wants an Asian teen girl? Like I don't like what's. Um, <laughs> uh, prob- that's probably what it's most yeah. used for. Uh, lots of apps branded specifically for hookups. So kind of contrary to what. Well, sure, but I imagine now, you get on that, and it's like webcam girls. Yeah, or something. I didn't find anyone on these apps. The population was really low. <laughs> uh, I'm just kidding. I didn't down. I didn't yeah, download any yeah, of these I apps and try them out. Yeah. Uh, adult affair finder mm, was that's one like that I what was what's it called um ashley madison, ashley madison. yeah jeez I, th- yeah. I feel that disgusts me that they they say let's let's yeah. cheat is the proclamation yeah. from the onset i mean I, again i guess i'd like i like that better than uh pretending that you're not cheating i mean there's something explicit about that but but damn i mean just damn if you're going to explicitly uh, i i don't know how i like, like yeah. Oh no! It's saying my startup disk is full now to make more space. Oh, uh, so that probably cut right off, then. Huh? I think I got in the the dam and the dam and the final mm-hmm. comment. So, um. <clears throat> all right. Well, so the, your audio is probably not coming in anymore. Uh, that means it's an, uh, time to end this podcast. My voice is the only one going, but I will uh, round out the topic <clears throat> by just finishing the list of things that I found. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I found uh, Christian dating. Luxie, which is for rich singles, Th- three play for threesomes. I found uh, gay apps, color dating, which you know I guess essentially just means dating for people who aren't white. Um, <laughs> black black people meet and transder, which I assume is for transients. <laughs> Tell him I laughed right there. Yeah, he's he's laughing right now. So. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that was kind of, that was kind of my search. Um, and I guess since there's no more conversation to be had, I could say whatever I wanted and you couldn't disagree with it. Um, <laughs> uh, but I will, I'll be generous, uh, and, and I, I, I won't do that. And we'll just, uh, we'll wrap up here. It was a long, a long and enjoyable podcast.